our numbers are higher. We heard it at our last session. We have outperformed everybody in the nation. Our numbers doubled in the last year, but I want you to hear what happened during this pandemic. Through SurveyWorks, we received 112,000 responses. This includes 2,500 more parents than last year. We actually reached more parents than we did last year during a pandemic, accounting for most ever numbers, 28,000 responses. As we continue our work to improve outcomes for Rhode Island students, it's important what families think and what they have to say. And that has been part of the cornerstone of what we've been talking about. SurveyWorks needs to evolve to meet our current reality. So this year we added a topic on cultural awareness and action. We also improved parent survey accessibility by placing all surveys behind one link for ease of access and streamline communication. We're always striving to get better. We also incorporated COVID-19 context because that makes sense. We wanted to know if kids participated in person, um, virtually, and what the impact was. So you'll hear a little bit about that data. I'm pleased to report that the uh, results show that school climate is at an all-time high. And you're gonna hear from our partner in Panorama where this survey is um, administered in different places in the nation and how we're doing compared to that. Students say teachers are more excited than ever to be teaching. Student surveys in grades three through five, the climate topic is up 8% from last year with 72% reporting positive climate. For students in grades six through 12, school climate is up 9% from last year to 50%. Still work to be done in that area. What the results also show us is that these trying times, respect has improved dramatically this year. For families, there's a marked change in the respect students have for each other. It's up 6% from last year. On the teacher surveys, students' respect for each other was up 25% from last year. And more than half of our teachers reported favorable perceptions about their students' social-emotional learning, up 9% from last year. This is just a little glimpse of the good news. All of this happened during a pandemic. Later on, Peg Boda will give you further in-depth findings of this year's survey. Thank you, Peg. I'm pleased that the data shows that we're building true inclusive school communities where students can reach their highest potential. While there's room to continue to improve, there are positive trends that we should be happy about considering at the challenges that we have faced. In this very difficult year, we saw tensions flare and divisiveness across the nation, but not in our schools. Instead, we saw teachers and students come together, create a climate of support and respect, and work hand in hand to overcome obstacles. Every time I visited a classroom, I heard from teachers that they were so happy to be back. We have heard directly from families that they want summer learning programs to help their students to make up ground in the wake of the pandemic. So a few weeks ago, and we've talked about this before, we opened our pre-registration over 350 courses to go live on Enroll RI. We are the only state that is doing this. The only state that did it last year and the only state that is doing this. Since then, we have extensive outreach to families to make them aware. We have direct contact, promotion on social media, radio advertisement, and response has been incredible. As of this morning, we have 4,043 registered students. We are proud to have this opportunity available for students interested. And as you know, um, 
we had um, ACN was only available for our secondary. Now it's from pre-K to 12. We will have a full analysis of participating mm -hmm. students available once the registration window closed. We'll break it up and we'll make sure that you get that information. But we still have some seats available, so we need your word getting it out. And what we'll do is that we'll forward the email we sent last time so that you can please forward it to everyone. Registration closes June 11th at 5 p.m. So please see enrolli.org for more details. We're also moving forward with new work for our students. Last week, the Assembly passed the bill to set standards for financial literacy in schools. The bill has not been signed by the governor as of yet, but we already have a working group with the Treasurer's Office. And if you recall, we started this work pre-pandemic, leading educators in the state to develop a plan to help our students learn how to manage their personal finances. We actually created a new network and we had our first working group this afternoon. We will be continuing meetings of the working group in the coming months, and we look forward to partnering with the council on this important work. Thank you again, and um, <coughs> thank you, Commissioner. Uh, we'll now move to our open forum uh, to help with the efficiency of the meeting as we do. We ask those individuals interested in providing public comment if they would write uh, written comments in advance of the meeting. We received six that were distributed to council members uh, prior to the meeting. We also request that if an individual wants to provide verbal comment, that they sign up in advance of the meeting. Today we have 13 individuals who have signed up. Um, as I do, I would like to thank everyone who took the time to write or who are coming before us tonight for your participation, for sharing your uh, concerns. So we are going to start with Frank Flynn with Mary Beth Calabro on deck. Good evening, can you hear me, Chair? Yeah. We can. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you members of the board for giving this opportunity. Um, I'm a career educator in the state of Rhode Island and currently the president of the Rhode Island Federation of Teachers and I'm providing this testimony to raise two important questions which I believe require clarification from this board. Um, General Law 1660-6 confers on this council the authority to appoint and employ a commissioner who shall serve at the pleasure of the council which by law makes this body the employer of the position of commissioner. I raise this point because Earlier this year, I personally was involved in a situation where representatives of an aggrieved party sought an opportunity to address their workplace concerns regarding the commissioner with this board as their employer, and they were denied that opportunity. And that situation has raised considerable concerns over who actually oversees the office of the commissioner and where do employees go to get relief. Um, if an employee cannot go to this board, you, the employers, then where do they go? Do they go to the governor? Do they go to the General Assembly? We quite simply don't know. And that lack of clarity uh, of, of a clearly defined hierarchy came to light again last week when a significant financial settlement was reached by the commissioner without the approval or input of this or any other appointed or elected body. And, and we believe that it's incumbent on every member of this body to adhere to their fiduciary responsibilities and uphold the highest levels of transparency. 
we have to wonder what policies or pro protocols exist or need to be adopted in order to uh, ensure the necessary level of oversight that we have. How can someone commit $170,000 of taxpayer money without the authorization from any specific person? Uh, it's a question that I believe needs to be answered, and I think that uh, the, the public uh, is owed a, a response to this. The second area of concern I'd like to raise is in regard to educator certification. For the past 12 years, I've served on the Rhode Island Certification Policy Advisory Board. I've been the chair for the past Frank, several years. Frank, if you years. could wrap up, the, the buzzer went off. I'm not sure you could right. hear it. So I couldn't. I'm sorry. So I have a significant concerns about the certification, the emergency certification of the previous superintendent um, based on a record, and, and you can read it in my uh, written comments, uh, there is a number of uh, questions about the certification and how someone with not, without history or documentation of a cert superintendent certification could get an emergency certificate five months after they began their employment in the in the, in the city of Providence. Um, and Thank there's a you. lack of a formal hiring process and resumes should be reviewed and a, a body would have, uh, that would have come to light Thank if you, this was done in a transparent manner. Thank you. Mary Beth Calabro with Jeremy Sensor on deck. Hi, good evening, folks. Um, my apologies. Um, Madam Chairwoman and members of the council, I'd just like to thank you um, for providing folks with this opportunity to speak. Um, I have obviously spoken out for several months um, about concerns that my entire membership has regarding the um, superintendent and the commissioner. Our membership took an unprecedented vote of no confidence in March prior to the events that took place with Dr. Alege and um, him victimizing several people in a gym. With that said, this has been one of the worst leaderships in my 26 years. There is no process, no protocols, no procedures in place. It seems as if folks are getting certified for arbitrary and capricious reasons. Emergency certifications are being distributed as if they were candy at a carnival. It is absolutely unacceptable to me and my membership that not only was Superintendent Peters allowed to get a buyout, but the fact that there was no input, no procedural safeguards in place, and no oversight from this committee is astonishing to me. When you gave authority up to the commissioner to oversee or overtake or take over Providence Public Schools, that does not mean that she is the supreme and almighty ruler and that there are no checks and balances within and among our system. Hiring Harrison Peters was her first mistake. He had a suspect pass in his previous employment. Certification is another issue. Subsequently, he hires Dr. Alege. He also hired, Keisha, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna wrap up, uh, Kachara Bradford and Kevin Gallick. Both, all three were employed in May of 2020 prior to the June 
report of Dr. Alege's dealings in Hillsborough, and then they were put on school board in July. That is a timeline that cannot be overlooked. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, Jeremy Sensor with Melissa Babcock on deck. Jeremy, are you there? I think you're on mute. We've pulled them in currently. Yeah. Jeremy, you're up. <laughs> we think. Jeremy, are you on mute? All right, why don't we move to Melissa Babcock and we'll go back to Jeremy. And Melissa, you're on mute as well. Here you come, we think. There we go. There we go. Go ahead. We see you. We hear you. Good evening, guys. Um, Commissioner Green, over the last two years since you came to Providence, I have felt many emotions. At first, I was excited and proud that a Latino woman, much like my nieces and students, had ascended to such a prestigious position. I was also hopeful after the John Hopkins report came out and town halls were held for parents, the community, and teachers. I attended one for the teachers at Asa Mesa. I listened to both you and the mayor as you spoke. I had the opportunity to hear parents and students, both past and present, of the Providence schools. That night, some of your tone was aggressive, but I had an open mind and still wanted you to succeed so Providence could be a place where all stakeholders were happy. At the end of the meeting, I waited in line to speak with you. I wanted you to know what it was like as a fifth grade shelter teacher in Providence. At that point, I had my roster for the next year. It had 27 students, all in red, and only three of them were coming to me above first grade level. I told you I would need help in small class sizes for real change to happen. You told me you were working with the DOJ to make changes. They never happened. You were, the, you were another person failing these children in a broken system. Talks of a takeover loomed large. Most stakeholders were in favor. The takeover was something that PTU supported in the beginning, believing it was necessary to make productive changes that supported our families. We thought there would be collaboration, as not everything in John Hopkins' report was negative regarding the teachers. It was actually noted how much teachers cared and supported their students. However, under your leadership, this has not happened, and the divide has only grown. Constant news media followed teachers being vilified and blamed for lack of academic progress. Yet everything last year, even before the pandemic, was status quo. This was after your campaign to take over was successful. Lies about parent-teacher conferences, which I have never not attended, along with many of my... Please wrap up. Read 180 investigations and visions in my map are a few that were implemented with fidelity. In the end, many of your lies led to parents not being able to get their students into VLA, even though that was a promise. 
They, we have had constant debacles in DLA, the hiring of uncertified, unqualified administrators to lead the district is appalling. And it's led Thank to you, Melissa. I am asking that the board look at what has happened and take a Thank seat. You, Melissa. And the We're over. And the way over. And move to remove Next, next up will be Ramona Santos Torres with Paige Clausia Parks on deck. And I want to remind everybody that there is a two minute limit. Um, a number of people are coming back to us a couple of times. So I hope you're familiar with the two minutes. It's an opportunity to give everybody the ability to speak. So we let you run over and finish a thought. So I'd ask that everybody respect the time. Ramona Santos-Torres, we see you. Um, good evening, dear members of the Council on Elementary and Secondary Education. My name is Ramona Santos-Torres. First and foremost, I am a parent of a Providence Public School student, and I am also the co-founder and executive director of PLEA. I decided that I will speak today in my most powerful role, which is a parent and principal stakeholder. No one can deny that we are in a historic moment right now in education in Rhode Island, where every decision that is being made is, is either going to hunt us or make us proud. In the last year, well, it was only last year when a group of community members, including myself as a parent, spent a lot of our time working on the recommendations of the turnaround plan. This plan was put together by community members. I was one of the co-chairs of the engaged communities. So what I want to share right now I can attest to. Um, the representative of the Providence Teacher Union that was assigned to my group only came two times over the course of the entire turnaround development process. He never returned, he never responded to email, nada. So sure, now PTU feels that they want to end the state intervention. Perhaps for them, the work that the community did is worthless. But because they gave up on the intervention doesn't mean that the community did. The community is expecting this plan to continue. Ending the state takeover will not, is reckless right now. Briefly, I want to share, I want to share with you the mentality that families like mine are dealing with right now. Months ago, my daughter and I were featured in a New York Times oh. article where we share our struggles with distance learning. She's a person with a disability. In a private Facebook group, leadership from PTU characterized my daughter's struggle with distance learning as carrying the water for the Commissioner of Education. I mean, the disrespect for my daughter, a student, from leadership from PTU, that's the mentality. And I can prove it. I have a screenshot. So there is no denying that. I need you to please, just to close my comments, to the members of this council, I need you to understand that you need to hear from us, from families. PTU does, doesn't represent families. They represent their members. They represent them. Thank you. Uh, we have Jeremy Sensor who is back, so we'll pull him up now with Paige uh, on deck. There, he dropped again, but. Dropped again. <laughs> so we'll go to Paige. Hi. Yep. Here. 
Hello. Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I'm here to share Rhode Island Kids Count support for the effort to continue to work um, to turn around Providence Public Schools. For 27 years, Kids Count has published the Rhode Island Kids Count Factbook, and year after year, the data shows us the dire outcomes for children in PPSD. I was honored to serve as a co-chair of the Community Design Team to help try to turn some of that data around. And developing the CDT recommendations was incredibly hard work, but the most challenging phase of policy change is implementation. The implementation of the Turnaround Action Plan has been met with many challenges. However, we cannot let these challenges impede progress. Now is the time to double down on the commitment to recreate PPSD into a high-quality anti-racist system. We are encouraged by the 2021 survey works results, which show increases in student, perce uh, student perception of their relationship with their teachers, school climate, and school safety. We commend the commissioner, the Rhode Island Foundation, institutions of higher ed, and community partners who have come together to develop pathways to diversify the educator workforce and to provide financial support for ESL certification. Mm -hmm. Other signs of positive progress include the development of the district-wide advisory council, the student advisory council, the rapid response tool for families, the dual language program at Gilbert Stewart Middle School, and increased engagement in parent-teacher conferences. And all of those accomplishments were key recommendations that were authored by the community design team. And we know there is much more work that is needed, but we cannot stop the forward momentum and get stuck in this backswing of progress that we're currently in. The struggle to correct the failings of previous generations of leaders is, is a lot of work, but I am pleading with my fellow educators and advocates and community leaders to keep the dialogue and the exchange of ideas civil, respectful, and always student-focused. Disagreement that is rooted in bias and utilizes racist stereotypes is wrong and upholds harmful practices. In conclusion, I'll say and remind us all that we are called to serve the children and families of Providence, and we should let our words reflect the respect they deserve. Thank you so much. Uh, third time's a charm for Jeremy. Maybe <laughs> not. Hi, I'm here now. I'm sorry. I'm uh, multitasking, interestingly enough, meeting with um, families of students who were not able to um, take the STAR test in, in VLA. So I've kind of been going back and forth on calls. Um, I wanted to just weigh in on the importance of getting this right, because in this kind of climate, I'm just going to speak, you know, directly about the, the idea of this public perception that's going back and forth and back and forth is rooted in a lack of trust and that trust is important and i have a lot of respect for not only you know miss santos and all of the members of the community design teams and i want to be very clear because i've had this conversation and in the interest of trust it's important to know that we were not invited until the night before the community design teams met and i felt it would be insulting to the members of the team to not make the full commitment. Now my calendar was full with, with different activities, including school related activities that didn't allow 100% participation. And I wanna be on the record publicly as saying, as I've said to members of the community design team, when I saw Ramona in there, somebody with whom I worked with on the Hopkins report visit, I felt absolutely confident 
that between the other teachers who were there and the community members, we were in good hands for recommendations for our school because impassion involved parents, our kids. It is my opinion that trust has been intentionally eroded by leadership of this takeover. And this is the primary reason why course correction and oversight is necessary. Because until we get to the point where we have all people together, because teachers, parents, we all understand Venn diagrams. Our Venn diagrams overlap. We're here for students. There's so much I can say specifically about the lack of teams, trust, and transparency in the management of this takeover. But this is a once-in-a-lifetime that we have to get right. And we have to get back to the table together, especially families and students, along with teachers and the bosses that seem to come and go every few years. And we need to develop a vision that's going to get the work done because our Venn diagrams do Thank overlap you, on the point of this work. Let's get to the work, please. Thank you. Uh, we have Topi Shepard next with Angelo Garcia on deck. Toby, I think you're muted as well. I'm so sorry. Good evening. Can you hear me okay? You can. Okay, great. Uh, well, good evening, Chair and members of the Council. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity um, to chat tonight. I just wanted to provide a brief update um, from PVD Prep, uh, one of the newly authorized charter middle schools that's opening this fall in the city of Providence. Uh, we couldn't be more enthusiastic. We're about 96 days away from the first day of school. Um, our students right now are beginning uh, some of their summer uh, reading assignments. Uh, our families are making appointments for their uniforms for next year, and our staff are preparing for three full weeks of summer professional development that's going to kick off in August. Um, I wanted to just invite members of the council uh, to visit our school this fall. Really hope we have the opportunity to host you, um, ideally in person, uh, this September. Um, and also just wanted to thank Commissioner Infante Green and the team at RIDE for their oversight, for their advocacy, for their leadership in uh, supporting our school um, through the authorization process and in preparation for opening this fall. So thank you so much. Thank you, Toby. Angelo Garcia with Delilah Rodriguez-Nason on deck. Hello. Hello. Hi, good evening. Can you all see me? We can. Hi, folks. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak before you. Um, uh, my name is Angelo Garcia. For those of you who don't know, I'm the executive director and founder at the Segway Institute for Learning. Uh, first of all, like uh, Mr. Shepard, I'd love to give you all an update on um, how we are uh, just this week registering our very first kindergarten class after a 13-year long haul of getting uh, kids into our school earlier and sooner. So thank you. Come and hang out. We'll let you finger paint with them if you want. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to expand and grow our school. It is amazing. I'm coming to you today not just as the executive director and founder uh, of Segway, but also as a Latino man who grew up in the Central Falls community. I think it's profound that I am running a charter school out of a building that my family was not welcome to be in 
when we first moved here in 1977. I also think that it's important for all of us as professionals and adults and humans not to take platforms, social platforms, uh, to be racist and sexist. I'm disturbed by the way people are treating people in authority. Nobody knows better than I do that you don't have to like someone to work with them. You don't have to get along with them. You don't even have to have the same values, but we need to respect each other. I think that that's key. We lose so much when that happens. Our children are watching. They are looking, they are reading, and they are hearing horrible and um, disgraceful things being said about people who look like them and have fought that fight to get to where they are. So I ask you, as the Board of Education, to not give that much time and attention, but even call it out. This year, more than ever before, the Department of Education under the Commissioner's uh, direction has been phenomenal to charter schools, to schools like Segway, um, as no one else has before. I heard the beep. I heard the beep. But I do want to let you all know, ladies and gentlemen, that um, uh, we need to make sure that we're standing up and that we're setting the example for our children. Thank you, Wall. Thank you, Ride. Thank you, Commissioner. Come and see Segway. Finger paint. Thank you, Angelo. Delilah and Chandra Womack on deck. You did too. Delilah? Sorry. Delia. Oh, Delia. Delia. Good evening, members of the commission and commissioner in Francisco. My name is Delia Rodriguez Majuan. I want to thank you for allowing me to speak today. I'm a board member of PBD Prep and a parent of a son that graduated from Providence School District last year, and I'm Latina. First, I would like to thank the Board of Education and the Department of Education for the leadership in supporting charter schools. PFBD Prep has been working very hard to ensure incoming families to our school receive the best education and engagement for successful academic outcomes as outlined in our goals for the school. We're very excited to be working with all of you in achieving this goal. With that said, we know that PBD Prep is not the solution, but a piece of the puzzle in how we can rethink and reimagine public school education in Providence. We cannot accept the status quo to deliver change and build a brighter future future for our children we must continue working hard as a community that we can provide this for the future of our children um, for the past year PVD uh, PPSD has been working very hard to transform the public school system and to prepare children not just some for the jobs of tomorrow and this work has been done during difficult times due to pandemic and disparities in social justice for communities of color. As a Latina who has been working in the community for the past 30 years, I've seen firsthand the need of this change and the results are clear. Right stewardship of PPSD is working and our students are making progress. We cannot stop now. We, we cannot work the work cannot happen overnight when the system has been failing for decades for our children. We must ensure that every child succeeds. Education justice is a right that all child deserves, and the commissioner has truly met this historic moment by putting educational justice at the heart of rights work. Leadership like this is overdue and needs to be supported, not attacked. We should be sending the message to our students that they can achieve their dreams and be who they want to be, no matter what they look like or where they come from. We cannot do this 
if we're tearing down our female leaders of color today. I ask that we put aside the bickering and the name calling on this parents, students, and community. Right. Let's continue to work. Let's trust the community and the commissioner on the turnaround plan for the sake of our students. Thank you very much. Thank you. Shonda Womack and Shannon McLeod on deck. I don't see Shonda. Shonda's not on. Okay. Shannon? She raised her hand. There we go. Sorry. Can you hear me? We can hear you. I'm sorry. I'm in my car. We just got home. Um, I'm a public school teacher, and I am um, a proud PTU uh, member as well. And I'm going to be honest with you, I signed up yesterday kind of in a moment of anger, a little angry off yesterday, didn't know what I was going to talk about. Generally, when I speak to you, I have it written down. I've rehearsed it. I'm good. I'm a theater person. Then today, I went to school, and I had to face my seniors the day after they found out that the state of Rhode Island, because I'm not putting this all just on Providence, can't get their acts together to print the poems for them. We've known since May, what, 19th, that Harrison Peters was going to go. He resigned on the 23rd, but we were in negotiations before that. We gave him so much money, by the way. And there's still no plan to get these diplomas to kids for next week. I've never seen kids the day before the last day of school, because that's what it is for my school, um, so despondent. They should be excited. And they were they were upset. I want you just to remember, they had no junior prom. They had no senior prom. They had no senior trip. And now they have no diploma. And just mailing it after the fact is not okay. Commissioner Fonzie Green, I, I was at my son's track meet. I didn't hear what you said make Rhode Island special. I'm sure it was nice. Um, but I'm going to tell you what makes Rhode Island special. We are super creative. In fact, Providence is the creative capital. Give this to us teachers. We can make this work. Why don't we let the kids have their original diploma with Peter's name on it and just then mail them the replacement? Um, we can find a way to make this work for these kids for next week. They have been through a lot. And I just think this is a big slap in the face to them. They're upset. I'm devastated for them. Back in October, when we didn't know the year graduation, I had the mantra in my classroom, Don't, the ceremony doesn't matter as long as you have that diploma. Now, I feel like I lied to them, to be honest with you. They're not getting that diploma. And it's some, I mean, we've got to give them something. If the state of Rhode Island can't get their act together to have printing overnight in, I'm a little worried about what the state's going to do with our school department, to be honest with you, because it seems like a super easy fix. I heard the beat. Thank you very much. Okay. I do thank you. Thank you, Shannon. Carla Vigil with Carmen Rodriguez on deck. All right. Good evening, um, council members. My name is Carla Vigil, and I serve as the Chief Executive Officer of Equity Institute. Can everybody hear me? Yep, okay. I grew up in Providence, and I attended and graduated from Classical High School. I love Providence, and I've worked in education in different capacities for the past 15 years. What we're experiencing right now is, is an extremely contentious period of time in our, our Providence community. I've witnessed public ridicule and shaming, the constant spread of misinformation, and a never-ending cycle of blame. We're better than that. We have to be for our kids. 
At my organization, we practice anti-racist principles, which means we lead with race explicitly. We acknowledge the historical and current trauma of a community. We analyze power dynamics and root cause of an issue, issue take action to restore the oppressed to wholeness, and co-create an affirmative vision and transformative solutions with accountability to impact the community. The reason I raise these principles is because it's critical to acknowledge that our systems have inadequately served our community for decades. This didn't just happen last year. It hasn't been happening the past two years. It's been going on for a long time, particularly to the to socially, economically, and politically disadvantaged folks and people of color. The harsh reality is, is that this is not at the hands of one individual. Yes, we need to hold each other accountable and recognize how each person, so take a look in the mirror, how you might perpetuate and disrupt the shortcomings of our schools. It is vital that we work together in principal struggle and engage in a new model of leadership that emphasize collaboration. We're spending a lot of time and energy and resources tearing each other down. And what do we have to show for it? It is in our best interest to support each other and to work together with one another to build a better future for our young people. The last thing, um, this last year has been the most challenging in history for everyone. Okay, that was specific. But thank you so much. I tried, I, I have my own timer here and I, but it's all good. Thank you so much. Carmen Rodriguez is our last speaker. I don't see Carmen. Not on. Okay. Well, one more call for Shonda. Okay. We'll move to uh, our agenda and the uh, uh, discussion items for the evening. The first is survey work results. Scott Gausland, RISE Director of Data Analysis and Research, will frame the discussion. And Peg Boda, RISE Research Specialist, Survey Works Project Manager, will present. As they get situated, I'm really excited about this data because some of the presentations that you have heard have now been affirmed through the survey works data, especially some of the information that we brought about Providence, and we'll tie that in together later on of how the teachers are actually feeling, the majority of the teachers. So you'll see that information in survey works. Thank you. <clears throat> members of the council for inviting us to present on the survey works results uh, for the school year uh, 2021. Um, I'm pleased to uh, introduce Peg Bada, who has run, uh, who has administered the survey works uh, system for five years now. This is the uh, fifth year of working with Panorama, um, engaging and understanding how the community feels about education in the state of Rhode Island. I feel that Rhode Island really does stand alone with regards to its participation rates. As you've heard, we've been able to increase uh, the rates of, of families participating in the survey uh, over last year, which is pretty incredible considering uh, the year that we've had. And, and Peg does an outstanding job reaching out to principals. She calls them, emails them, um, answers their questions with regards to administering the, the survey itself. 
and it really does a fantastic job ensuring that we get participation rates as high as possible. So I just want to commend Peg on the great work that she does, and I'm going to hand this uh, presentation over to her as the expert in, in this information. She can really speak to just about any aspect of the survey, so Peg, it's all yours. Great. So thank you. Um, I have to say survey work is my favorite part of the year. It's always so great to be able to reach out to all the schools and districts, site coordinators, everybody gets so excited about being able to give their opinions because this is the only time they get the opportunity to do that. So I'd like to just walk you through quickly um, some of the survey data. You want to go to the survey, um, the first page, survey content? So survey content, we work with Panorama Education. Um, they are uh, survey leaders in the country. They actually work with New York City, LA, states across the country, all the big school districts, and they're a very, very responsive company. I don't consider them a vendor. I truly consider them a partner. Eric from Panorama was supposed to be with us here today, but he actually got called out um, and couldn't make it because he's got to serve for somebody who uh, actually had uh, just went out for maternity leave. So I would have liked to have him here also so that you could hear from him. Um, but Panorama actually does these surveys so that we, as a small state, right, it's really hard for Rhode Island because we're so small. We don't get the opportunity necessarily to see how we do it. It's hard to compare a little tiny school in Rhode Island when there's only 140,000 students. What we get the opportunity with Panorama is we can actually benchmark ourselves with elementary schools and high schools across the country just a really great opportunity for us to see how we really fit because again it's just one more way we can look at ourselves against our own district we can look at ourselves against the state and we can look at ourselves nationally a lot of these topics were chosen um, by stakeholders here in Rhode Island but we have the opportunity to change these every year so for example a few years ago we added the social and emotional learning once we actually um, we passed regulations here around social and emotional learning, so we said we want to be able to track that. This year, as the commissioner said, we actually are, we added a, a section on cultural awareness and action, so we could get a better idea of what's actually happening in our schools. What are our teachers teaching? What are they feeling? What are our students feeling? Next slide. So again, as the commissioner said, big changes this year was the new content, cultural action, um, awareness and action family survey accessibility in previous years parents actually some families because if they didn't if they didn't get the link from the school how are they going to get it so this way they just had one link it was a bitly link they could click on it and then they could choose from a drop down of the school so say here's my school and they were able to access the survey that way and again as the commissioner said we had the question around COVID-19 context because you know some people said well why don't you just change the survey right but if we do that then there's no way to be able to find out over time how things change we wanted to be able to have that longitudinal picture and on top of it we wanted to be able to look at that data what is your experience as a student who's virtual almost all all the time versus a student who's in person all the time and we actually end up being able to get that data as well next slide so here's on the uh, survey works response um, response counts right you will see um there are two little asterisks there for spring 2020 and, and for 2021 the survey um, went through March 31st of last year, and we actually had survey windows for our schools. We had a bunch of schools whose survey window was the second half of March, which is right when we went out on COVID. So we had to know we were going to take a hit there. There was just wasn't a whole lot we could do about it because they were trying to get their own technology up and running. The thought of me getting on the phone saying, hey, don't forget to survey your kids, it seemed like just not a fair thing to do. 
Um, this year, and, and if you actually look at the data, you'll see our surveys of data did go down again. Largely virtual kids, largely secondary kids. And again, I would reach out to the principals, and the principals would be like, we're trying everything we can do. But it's really hard for kids who are in there virtually to be able to say, yeah, get on to the survey. They, they did everything that they could do. We had a small dip on the teacher survey, nothing that I'm worried about. If you look at the actual, um, at the, over time, you're seeing that everything was moving up and up and up, and I believe that that will continue again next year. So it is, it is something we wish we could have brought up more, but um, Panorama will tell you this seems national, particularly at the secondary level. Okay, I'm going to go quickly through the results. Now, I have a lot of slides here, and I could talk. Lots of, I love this data. So you all need to just say to me, stop talking. <laughs> okay? So you need to just let me know if I have to. The family data. Highlight. What's that? You skipped over the family data. Oh, because you want, I'm sorry, you, because you talked about it. I know, but that's really important. But that's really, okay. the hardest thing to do. And, and it has been. This year, know that it's very, it's very, very difficult to do. The fact that we're actually up to 25% now, statewide for family data. When we talk to Panorama, they're like, if you can get to 10% statewide, you're looking good. You know, and we've got schools. In fact, we had some schools that actually had 100% family participation rates. I, I couldn't get over it. Um, and, and we had, um, yeah, so we had some very, very solid rates across across the district. It's some really solid ones in our urban districts, you know, just across the board. It was really great to see. We have a breakdown by district, so we, you have it broken down by district? Of uh, race? Yes. Yes. So all of that actually is online. So we have a, what we did was we actually set up a survey rate um, response dashboard. So we set up a little gentle competition, which was great. So everyone could go in, see what their district rates were, see what their school rates were. Okay. And that's on the survey work site. Okay. Uh, so I'll go quickly through the results and try to, this is 30,000 feet level kind of information. I'm just going to walk you quickly through the students. Okay, so what, you, what you're seeing here, again, when I said we can compare to nationally, that's that piece in the middle, the green. So you can see where we are. So for school teacher-student relationships, we're at the 80 to 90th percentile nationally, right? So that's really good. The other important thing to look at is, is, is the green on the, all the way to the right of each of these charts. That's our improvement just over one year, right? So we've had some really great movement. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into these as we go as we go forward. A few things I'm going to point out just so you know. I want everybody look at school safety and go, oh, wow, look at that. That's great, right? There are some things that we didn't change, remember? So school safety asks questions like, were you bullied on school property? Well, guess what? A lot of kids weren't bullied on school property. So I don't want to pretend like there are these. I think some of these results are fantastic, but we also have to be honest about what's real, which is the school safety one is not actually a lot of questions about what's happening on the school premises, so it would make sense that this number would jump up. Um, so you can see where obviously we have to work. Obviously school climate on the, on the 6 through 12 side, um, we're still in the 0 to 19th percentile, right? But we're seeing a lot of improvement, and that's all real. That's all real in terms of the respect, in terms of teachers being excited to come to school, in terms of kids feeling like they belong, that's all real data. <clears throat> Next slide. So now this is your teacher and uh, professional uh, support professional results. Same thing. You'll see the national uh, national benchmark in the center, and there with then where all the increases are. I'm just going to say quickly, as if you look at it, you're going to see we're looking at increases here really across the board, right? Um, there's, a, there's a few little blips, but there's nothing that I'm worried about. As the educating all students piece was actually a lot about sort of um, how, do, um, how do I deal with 
with uh, kids that need support in the school. So again, some of those questions were related to, are you on site in the school? So some of those numbers end up being more negative. Next slide. Family results. Okay, not as big, a, not as big jumps here, but still some positive information. Um, we have, the, again, the school safety one, it's not, it's not necessarily as relevant, but we're gonna be able to dig down into some of this other data. To be honest with you, Family surveys, well, what I found in, in general is that, and they, they so said this was across the board nationally, families were having a really tough time dealing with this. So sometimes the way that they responded was more, I think, in terms of like the pains they felt to their kids, um, which was really interesting because again, we saw data about the stress and where the kids were saying, and to some extent, the stress was not so much for them, but if you ask the families, the families are saying, my kids are beyond stress. Mm -hmm. So it was weird. I think that there was a, an interesting way in, in the way that some of the families, I think, answered this survey. Next slide. So we ask um, open-ended questions this year around the pandemic. We wanted to get an idea of how the, the kids in 3 through 5 and 6 through 12 and the families felt about what was working this year and what wasn't working this year. And if you look, the one thing that's going well that you'd like to see continued is pretty clear, right? This is, you guys all know what a word cloud is. And it was just like, all right, I think we know what families really want to see here. I think they want the kids back in school. Next slide. So now here's Providence results, right? When we were talking about some of the really good news in Providence. Providence has seen unbelievable gains. Now, if you look, yes, are they still low in the percentile rank nationally on some of these items? Absolutely. But look at the increases across the board. You know, it's just, it's just wonderful to see. Um, and I, you know, teachers and staff with resources, that is typically something that teachers struggle with, right, is, is having to be able to buy their own materials or feeling like the, the school needs some work, those kinds of things. So where you see a dip, it's not a huge surprise. But these are increases in Providence like I've never seen. And Providence has been steadily going down. So I think it's something we really, really should, should celebrate. Next slide. So here is just a quick insight on belonging. These are the big things that really, belonging and respect, these are both included out in Ride's strategic plan, so it's really important. In fact, when we put in the data for the strategic plan, I said, I don't think belonging's gonna push. I don't think, I think you're gonna have to take the zero for this year because that's not what happened. The kids are feeling belong, belonging, even if they're not in school, there's such a feeling of this school community that these, that these people are trying to figure out. And I think the adults got it right, and I think the teachers got it right here, when they said, we have to work extra hard this year. We're gonna have to do everything we do to be excited about school and to get kids to care about our school community. And it's it's clear, there were just like a, you know, a few points, but how much respect students in your school show each other? Up 16% from last year, that's incredible. Um, and again, how do you how much do you feel like you belong? So I just wanted to, that's a, a big sort of insight, both on the three, three through 12 survey, um, the three through five and the six through 12 survey. Next slide. Same thing with engagement. Um, I wanna see, I wanna make sure, cause I, I go through this and then I, Oh, I meant to say this. Okay, I just want to make sure that was it. Um, same thing, just to be able to look and see, two big things really come out on this one, right? Is how, how excited are you to, about going to your class, right? We, that has been flat for, for the last four or five years, that one. And how often do your teachers seem excited to be teaching? And both of those, um, both surveys really went up, and I think that that's, that's just testament to how much the teachers are going, I believe, out of their way to really try to make this 
this really difficult situation this year for, for kids. And no kidding, you know. Next slide. Okay, so this is the social and emotional learning one that I was talking about. This was the one that we added just a few years ago so that we can keep an eye on our, on our regulations. Again, never seen numbers like this. How much respect do students in your school show each other? Teachers are saying we're up 25% on that. And you know what, I have to say, I sent this over to um, someone in the commissioner's office. We couldn't add enough yet one more slide, but I decided to do a quick look at the three through five survey just because I was curious to know what the kids were thinking. The amount of time that kindness came up, where kids just said, because we said, what do you want to keep the same? They said, I want us to be kind. I want people not to be mean to each other anymore. And it was just over and over and over again. It was just, it was so heartwarming. Um, next slide, because I know I did, I got a lot to go through. So this is our cultural awareness piece. Um, I thought this was important to put in there. Um, really, because if you look at, um, we asked a question about how, how often do, how, um, how confident are you that adults at your school can have honest conversations with students about race, right? Fourth indicator here on the left. But then how often do students have conversations? So there's sort of this disconnect, like they realize that this needs to happen. They realize that kids need to be able to talk about these things, and adults realize that they need to talk about these things too, but if you ask them if they actually do it, they don't. So I think it's a really great opportunity for us to even think about professional development or schools that are getting it right, and we'll be able to see a school that's getting that right shortly. Next slide. Okay, again, back to respect and, um, and cultural awareness, right? So respect, even families think that respect is us. Across the board, this is sort of the thing. It's been, it's been really the respect question and, and the excitement for teachers. Um, and then how did families, again, same thing you're going to see, to the best of your knowledge, when there are major news, uh, the bottom question versus the, versus the top question, right? When there are, do you think the adults at your school will talk to the students? And then how often do they talk with them? So it's that disconnect. Do you think it's important? And do you think it happens, right? a 20-point difference between those things. So I think there's a way for those to come together for us to really think about that as a state going forward. Next slide. Here's your learning mode question, right? So this is a little, this is a lot of data in one slide. The best way to think about it is, so for example, if you look at, um, I'm gonna say this first one here that says, um, risk, how do I put it? So. Up at the top, it says risk protective outcomes in the first slide, 76%, right? That means 76% of the students in 6 through 12 rated that favorably, right? Anything with a minus in the chart below it means those students ranked it worse, and anything with a plus in the green means that more students were favorable about it. What it's showing is if you're all in person, so the more green, the better these people responded, right? All the greens are all in person or mostly in person. The reds and the oranges are all the virtual, whether it's for the students or the families. Kids, kids struggle, and we know that. So that was why it was really important for us to be able to get these data, because now we can look across all the survey items and say, okay, so what did work? What didn't they struggle with so much? But it gives us an opportunity to be able to look at this again next year as all the kids come back to school. Next slide. Okay, so now I'm going to spotlight some schools. Sorry. Um, so I decided, you know what, it's really important, just because so just you have great results, I mean, just great response rates, that's not enough. You have great results, that's not enough. You have great response rates and results across all of your surveys and all of your stakeholders. And 
are you at school that has some challenges, right? We don't need it's just a school that's, you know, it's fine, it's every day. We're, we, wanted some, we wanted to look at some schools that were kind of beating the odds, that were in a tough place and are starting to pull themselves out. And, and I believe that this survey data will tell you that they're going to continue to do that. And when I called these schools today, they were very, very excited about it. I don't know if Courtney, who's the principal at this school, is on the line. I, I think that she wanted to be. The other two schools, unfortunately, one is doing a, um, a special education ceremony, and the other one is actually doing their honors night tonight. So couldn't be. It was, I, I do want to mention that Courtney is the principal of the year. She is. Courtney's Providence. the principal of the year. And this, she is on. She is on. Great. Hi, Courtney. Yay! <laughs> So here's what we have. I wanted to be able to take a look at what is their um, economically disadvantaged, right? Um, in 2017, they were a priority school, so that was our lowest performing schools. In 2019, there were two stars. Unfortunately, we don't have data for this past year, which when I spoke to Courtney, she said, I wish we did, right? Because I think she truly believes, and I believe, that, they, that there have been improvements, okay? So I just want you to take a look. We go from school climate. This is how it results have changed over time, right? So school climate, when they were designated priority in 2017, they were at 56, they're now up to 80, right? With, with, and you can see the jumps, right? Also important to realize that they're- I just want you to make sure that everybody understands that this is like unprecedented. This is crazy data. Mm -hmm. right. crazy. And this is, this is a Providence Schools, guys. During a pandemic, I, I, I want you to understand that. It's, it's I, when I pulled it out, I was just like, oh my gosh, look at that. Like, it's, so, it's, it's just so heartwarming. I mean, at your school, how much is the learning of other students hurt or help your learning? Excuse me, 4%. Did they have a change in leadership at the school since the... the she said year? she came in, I think she said in... A, a, obviously, we talked to her. I think it was just like a few years before that. She said that it was so devastating okay. how the school had been at that time. And Got it. she's just been working. So then she came in and worked. Thank you. That's, that makes a big difference, right? Um, you know, even just a negative, a positive or negative at the energy of the school. Okay, 18 points. And this is just, again, this is just your students. And then you get to see where they rank nationally, right? So this is their national benchmark is they're in the 80th percentile for this topic, for school climate. Okay, next slide. Now we're gonna look at teachers at the same school, right? Because it had to be for all serving, for all serving takers, right? From 44% up to 80% school climate for teachers, right? With a 23, again, how do you see how respectful are the relationships between up 23 points? Do you see students helping each other out up, up 25 points? And you're at 96% and 89%. What I didn't mention is up top, it shows you actually what the rate is, right? So this teacher's, this school, 100% teacher participation, right? Um, and again, in the 80th percentile nationally. Next slide. Families. Okay, at 69%, now up to 81%, right? Also 81% percentile nationally. Up to, up 2%, up 2%, but 82% say that the children actually enjoy going to the child school. That is not a, num a number we see in a lot of schools, anywhere in this state. Again, family rate, 42. To other people who aren't trying to get families to respond to a survey, it might not seem like that big a deal. A 42% response rate is a fantastic rate for a family survey. So anyway, that's my kudos on Fogarty. I'm going to go to my next school, and I promise I'll be done soon. Central Falls Senior High School, all right? Here's another school that's really had some tough years, right? 2017, they were priority. Now they're up to two stars. Student rate was, 50, was um, 55. They go from 46 to 60. 
And then look at all these increases over here. Again, haven't seen numbers like this in any time that I can recall. And I was, uh, you know, I've been looking at their site. It just seems like they've, they've created an atmosphere where these kids are starting to feel like somebody cares about them. You know, and I just think it's wonderful. And I'm going to move on because we're running out of time. Okay, so here are, here are the, um, the teachers and staff. So this one is cultural awareness and action. I said I would bring up a school that actually was doing right by this. The numbers with this for um, the statewide is like 36, just to give you an idea, right? They're up at 73. The reason why we don't have, and this is where they are compared to Rhode Island. So they're the 73rd percentile in Rhode Island. The reason why is because this is a new topic for Panorama. So there is no national benchmark yet. Uh -huh. In a year, we'll be able to look at these schools up against every other school in the country that is taking this survey. But it gives you an idea of how good that, how good they're doing, how well they're doing with that data. Okay, we can move on. So family support, and 51 to 62. The reason why we don't have any data on this, and this is important, again, only a 14% family response rate, but that's still a lot of kids, a lot of families in Central Falls, because last year they didn't have enough families to be able to even have their survey. So there isn't any way to be able to look at any kind of improvement other than the improvement to the overall topic because you can sum all that stuff together. But it's unfortunate because I'm sure that it's, it's incredible if you look at the difference 55 to 62, obviously that would be something we just can't, we don't have the data. But Peg, that's really important because, because to go from zero to 14 is a big deal. And I want to remind everyone that Central Falls nationally for the Latino population was most impacted by COVID-19 nationally. Right. Okay, last school, okay. So now this is Hennessy. Hennessy was a priority school in 2017. 2019, it's a three-star school, all right? The student rate, 98. I mean, I, I don't even really have to say much. Their data is incredible. It really can't get much better. This is one of those schools, I have to be honest, I've been watching them for the last few years and they just keep getting better and better. They've got the chronic absenteeism tool going. They've got so much going on over there. I just think there's a school to watch and a school to learn from. Um, you know, 86 percentile, we'll go to the next slide. This is a slide that just blows me out of the water. So on this one, okay, they have a 100% teacher response rate, right? Now this is a school that's 62% read reduced lunch, right? So they have a 100% teacher response rate. They go from 60 to 93 on school leadership, 11 points in just one year. And look at these responses. Overall, how positive is the influence of school leaders? 100%. 100% favorable with a 100% response rate. That's like, that leader's doing something right. You know what I mean? There's some really, really happy teachers, happy kids, happy families. Next slide. So I wanted to bring this in because this is some of the open-ended information, right? This is where we get the parents to be able to tell us what they think is important. And so we asked them what's working. And I just wanted to give you an idea of what they're saying. Inclusive, inclusivity, safety. The teacher makes the lessons engaging saying, you know, my child has great teachers. This is what the families are telling us. So the data, and then once I had that all in there, then I said, you know what, I know they have great survey data too. So I went and I snuck that little piece in at the end because I didn't, so that's not actually on your slide, but this piece, I wanted to be able to pull out some more information so that you could see the, the so again, family response rate, 36%, pretty darn good. Overall, how much respect? 99% are favorable on that. How much respect do you think the teachers, so talk about a mutual, mutual respect, right? Teachers respect kids, kids respect teachers, kids respect each other. 
That's right. I'm done. <laughs> that was amazing, Ted. And so we're going to be tracking these compared to scores. As you know, scores will lag. Mm -hmm. um, but to see that correlation. Exactly. And, you know, even things like chronic absenteeism. So before I would even let these schools be part of this, I wanted to see what their chronic absenteeism was like. So, for example, Central Falls chronic absenteeism is high, right? But it is a an urban high school. Guess what? Chronic absenteeism in urban high schools are high. The only urban high school with a lower chronic absenteeism rate is Jackie Walsh in the country. After that, it's Central Falls, which is saying something. Because two years ago, Central Falls had among the highest chronic absenteeism among high schools in the state. So again, there's, there's, there's room to move and there's room to grow and improve. But I really feel like these schools, these three schools are heading absolutely in the right direction. It would be terrific to, to take a look at some, ask the questions, what did you do? When you talked about learning from these schools, I think something's come up in almost all of these slides, though, is the importance of leadership, right? That's why I asked the question about the, the Mary Fogarty School. You can clearly see it. Yep. And so it underscores the importance of leadership. Absolutely. Okay. Love to dig into that. And Love sharing, to dig into that. And then sharing what they are doing. Yes. Yes. But yeah. we don't get that. Not enough. <laughs> well, we have. We, we've been doing that in problems. So you'll hear a little bit about Larry. Yeah, uh, a comment and a concern. Um, comment being just to follow up on school leadership when we talk about the Hennessy School. Scott's right, the top superintendent. Mm. Terrific uh, leadership there. The concern is, and not anything out of this, looking at the cultural awareness and action and, and the, talking about race and everything. I, I, I'm, I'm maybe. I'm overly optimistic on that, but I thought the numbers were good considering, you know, 40%, 45% talking about it. My fear is we all know there are groups out there that are pushing hard to eliminate all that. Yeah. Uh, South yeah. Kansas being one. I mean, they're just getting inundated. So um, that's just a fear I have going forward, and I think we're going to have to continue to push hard on that because, unfortunately, there's people out there pushing against me. Okay, well, a shout out to Mary Fogarty in Providence and Miss Hennessy in Central Falls Senior High School. Kudos to all of you, um, superintendents, teachers, families, administrators, and uh, of course, students. Keep it up. Our next uh, discussion item is curriculum adoption. And we have Lisa Burr, who provides Chief of Teaching and learning who will frame the discussion and Phyllis Lynch, Rides Director of Instruction Assessment of Curriculum will present. Thank you. Hey everyone. I quickly kick it over to Phyllis to start, but you may remember a few months ago we did an update about where the districts were. Um, you made a request at that time for a little more information about their timelines um, and some of their budget, what budget might look like. So we did a little bit of surveying and calling and hounding and um, happy to share some information back with you tonight. Hello everyone. So great to see everyone in person. So we'll start by talking about what we asked actually everybody. And so we did a survey and we had 60, 61 responses from the LEAs, which was a great response rate. And oh, and we asked them um, for adoption timelines. So have you already adopted a high quality curriculum? Or if you haven't, when do you plan on adopting it? 
for particular grade levels and content areas. What they have, what they estimate as the cost that they would be budgeting for that ELA and math curriculum, and what funding sources that they were going to utilize, whether that was local, state, or federal grants. The data. So here's the data that we have. You have two things in your packets, by the way, as I see you ruffling through. Yeah. You have, so this, we summarized in the PowerPoint slides, you have, because we thought you would be interested, a district by district breakdown of everyone. This is who's in your packets. That is that document with the blue coding and the green coding. Okay. We don't have that. I don't have the debt. So you don't have the actual printout of the debt. Okay, no, so stop looking. You do not have a printout of the deck. <laughs> We're showing you some summary information here, but you have the more detailed district. But we can send it to you afterwards yes. electronically. Better. We will do that. So what you can see here is the distribution of planned adoptions for ELA. So by 2020, by June 2021, so the end of this school year, um, ELA adoption across the grades, and it varies. I'm sure many of you know, sometimes they're adopting in a particular grade span at different times. So from 40 to 47% uh, will be complete in grades K2, 3, 5, and 6, 8. And at high school, it'll be 29% by the end of this year. Um, by 2022, adoption across the grade levels will be ranging from 56 to 66%. And by June 2023, our timeline uh, will range from 95 to 97%. What that actually means is there will be four LEAs across the state that will have not adopted in one or more grade levels. Um, so it's not necessarily a whole district, but it's a district and a specific grade span. And just one highlight, I'm sorry, Phyllis, is that they provided us all this information before they knew what they were getting for ESSER 2 and ESSER 3. So we anticipate now some of these folks who have this stretched out to the end, now that they have the extra funds, will be able to purchase that in advance of that timeline. So we did survey them before they had that. So that's just a little um, bit of extra information. Sorry, Phyllis. Yep, no problem. And for our map? It went. Oh, perfect. Thank I you. can't see it, but it went. And so map, we're a little further ahead. Um, so by the, by end of this school year, adoption for mathematics um, will be 59 to 68% um, through grades K through 8, and high school algebra 1, geometry, and algebra 2, 31%, or 33%, sorry. By July 2022, so the end of next year, adoption for K-8 will be 79 to 82%, and 53% for high school. And finally, by the 2023 deadline, will be at 96 to 100% across the grade levels, with actually grades 6, 8 being fully having high quality. And in this instance, too, it is still five LEAs in a particular grade or grade span. And you have that specific information right on the spreadsheet. The next slide is the estimated cost by subject and year that districts said that they would be allocating for those curriculum materials and I will say while well, some kind of just thought about and budgeted for the first year others said well yes I'm gonna need this much for the first year but then I need to buy um, the consumables every year so they added money in so you can see the total money um, that folks were budgeting across the years and, and decreasing um, by the end of 22-23 and again before ESSA right mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Sure. I thought I remembered last time there were a bunch of the blocks that were in red, where they were 
not even close. And and so everybody's. So what we had updated when we we talked about when we came and presented a few months ago, it was where everyone was as of today. Right. So the request was, what would it look like if we gathered information from districts out to the deadline of 2023? Okay. Right. So when you you're take gonna, it out, you're going to get there. Most people are getting there. Okay. Yeah. All the four LEAs in math and four LEAs in ELA in subsets of specific grade levels. Okay. And that includes professional development along with the curriculum change and all of that. It does. You'll see in some of the responses when we get in a couple of slides that the question that we ask specifically and what the legislation specifically requires is whether they will have selected and adopted by 2023. Okay. So we and know so if they adopt in that last year, they have many years of professional learning to be able to fully implement that. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And so this slide is a visually displays the types of funding that the LEAs identify that they would be using to support the curriculum adoption and implementation. Um, and what you can see here, just, I think the big takeaway is the largest amount of funding was local funding. Again, this is pre-ESSER um, funds. So they don't know that they have those yet. Certainly some state funds, um, federal funds, and a small amount of grant and private funds as well. So are you going? Do they understand what the ESSA? I don't know if we would do it again this school year, just because of where we are in the school year. I think we need to get through that ESSER planning process and funding process, and then that'll give us a chance when we collect the information again to see how it's shifted. However, what we are going to add is in our review of their ESSER 2 and ESSER 3 ask districts that are at that far end, we are going to remind them of that and encourage them to use their funds to oh, okay. this curriculum. Okay. So they'll catch them before they submit their ESSER. They'll know that that's an allowable use of Correct. 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 And we're actually encouraging and pushing, and we ask for permission. Yes, so we got permission to do this. And the funding allocated and identified include professional development. Correct. If it's, they, resources. it's primarily resources. It depends on how they included it in their budget. That's but we ask. To the professional development. Yeah. You can buy it, but it's yeah. yep. And that's some of the yep. comments. So when you yep. Yep. Yes. How long? Yes. <laughs> we do the same. Yep. It is an additional cost. There's no question. Are we tracking that? And we don't have a separate line for professional development funding. That's that's flushed out in that way. But will they understand, can the ESSA funds be used for yes. 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 understand. I was just waiting for Lisa to stop talking to say we are tracking it in the ESSA funding. Yes. And encouraging. Yep. And we're partnering with our one and two star districts to do some co-sharing around that also. Thank you. And, and so in the knowing that it's allowable and communicating that that it's allowable, then in terms of tracking um, whether or not money is being spent and dedicated to professional development, is that something that we'll be tracking? Yep. And also monitoring and support for our <laughs> districts. Yes. Yes. So yeah, it's going to look entirely so different. Yes, okay. it will. And I just want to add that in our moving from compliance to support, we have gone back to our one contact that we had during COVID that's going to be working with the districts. So we're going to be holding everybody's hand, making sure that they are putting in what is needed. And they're looking forward to this. They have been very excited mm -hmm. for the information and be able to do this work. So. Aside from tracking it, we're going to help them get there. Because yeah. one thing is to track it. Another thing is to help them actually do the work that needs to get done in a supportive manner. 
We also asked a few open-ended questions um, when we put the survey out. So we just wanted to share a little bit of the trends that we heard back on some of the reflections from the districts. I think the takeaway, you'll see a couple quotes here, a couple quotes on the next slide, but the takeaway is really that people are, in our districts are supportive of the ask, right? They're supportive of the requirement. They believe in high quality instruction materials. They also believe in the right to read act because the open-ended results also yielded a lot of responses about the right to read act. So there was no question in the responses that people were supportive of both expectations for high quality instruction materials and the right to read act. I think time and time again, at the time that we did this survey, what came back as the largest concern was funding which was something that we had talked about in our first meeting of the year. So you see that here about the cost and the cost of material and the cost of professional development. And then you see it reflected through the Right to Read Act on the second slide with just, we pulled out a couple of the quotes that represented some of the themes. And what people are really working to figure out, again, this is where ESSER comes in and really helps out a lot, but they're really trying to balance the requirements around Right to Read with the requirements around the high quality instruction materials some timelines that overlap with those expectations, um, and then what at this time they had available to them for funding sources. And so that's what you see reflected there. So as we move ahead a little bit, when you think about the trends that we heard then, and we've already now kind of talked about this a little bit, the biggest opportunity that we really have right now is the ESSER funding. And so for the, for the desires, for the expectations, and for the concerns that we heard from districts, the opportunity for them to dedicate ESSER funds both to the high quality instructional materials and to assist with the foundational literacy, the right to read act expectations will help a lot. Um, and will help a lot both on the ride side and where we're able to support them with resources from us, but also in those local ESSER plans that they will have. We continue some work and so we wanted to just, you know, highlight a little bit of some of the ongoing work that's happening. We have already um, started to assemble our Ed Reports Cohort 5. Um, so that's something we've talked about here before. It's a selection process support. We still get a lot of interest for that, so we're, we are already continuing that. We are also pulling together curriculum-specific cohorts, so where we have a group of districts that have adopted Eureka Math, we can pull them together and we can support them on the professional learning side. Um, and so they're working together. They have support from national partners. It really helps them not only launch, but put systems in place and get off on the right foot for what implementation will look like over the next several years. Um, and we are starting to launch a, are some thinking around continuous improvement. And so what does this look like when we get beyond that first year implementation or the second year of implementation? What does this look like in an ongoing way for districts to have systems and for RIDE to be able to support the ongoing quality implementation of those high quality instruction materials? Along the bottom, do you have a list of the districts that have um, participated with us for Ed Reports? The asterisks just represent districts that have participated multiple times. So we do have a lot of districts, a good number of them, that have brought a team in and said, wow, that was really helpful. Can we come back next year and do this for another content area or for another grade span? Um, and of course, we're happy to have them back. So just a quick summary, I mean, we still, if you think about the presentation that we had in the spring, you know, we have made significant progress up to where we are now. But as you look at the new information and we look ahead to that 2023 deadline, um, we will, even before having the ESSER funds available, the vast majority of our districts already had plans in place to meet those deadlines. 
and now we will be able to ensure that they have the means to get there um, and can re-examine those timelines um, for when they will meet those deadlines. Sure. 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 questions? Comments, um, questions? I, I, I don't want to be dead lost about this, but I, I just get concerned about, um, and I get a conversation about the professional development, a, a three to five, ten year plan for curriculum implementation and professional development financially supported needs to happen at the district level and then we can figure out how can work with them to the network we keep talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I just have seen it fall apart by the resources, and then for whatever reason, the professional government gets canceled, and teachers have supplies and resources, but there's no fidelity of the institution. Yeah, I think we share that concern, to be to be honest with you, and it's what drives the, the conversation about continuous improvement that we've started to have. So because we share that concern, we are, you know, making sure we can think beyond the purchase of the materials that first year. I call it launch because it's really the unpack the boxes and learn what's in the boxes. And then year two looks a little bit different, but what happens five years out makes a huge difference. Um, so that is part of that continuous improvement thinking and what that looks like really targeted on that implementation of curriculum and instruction that's happening related to that curriculum. But, I just know some districts need more support with that planning than yep. others. Yep. And the vision, too, that we've outlined as we want health, health districts think about what does it look like and what are the aspects you need to have in place to implement a high-quality curriculum, not only including like the instructional aspects, the materials, but also what operationally needs to happen. What type of funding do you need to think about? How do you need to think about staffing like and all of those pieces, too? So trying to think about all of the bucket leadership, as we've talked about on the previous item. What are those things that need to be in place? Um, to be able to really support a quality implementation over time. And one of the things that I'm thinking, and Michael, to your point, um, when we support districts and we think about unpacking the boxes and we think about the kinds of the materials and so forth that you need to have, we can learn from some of the districts that do have systems in place that really do professional development well, that it's not just bringing in the, you know, the representative from the, from the company to come and talk about it, to look at the scope and sequence, but they can, but really have, you know, coaches and, and, and grade level teams and, and deep, deep, deep work with the materials that are in the box. And there are places that are doing that. And so I would just suggest if you haven't, I'm sure you already thought of it, that one topic for those networks might be just highlighting those places that really know how to do that well. Thank you. Um, Lisa, we'll keep you up there for our next uh, discussion item. Extension to begin educator preparation program, program's residency requirement. You may remember, <laughs> um, we came before you again, um, probably a few months ago at this point, for some continuing authority to make adjustments within the certification regulations related to COVID. And so we had talked about at that time a need to a need for us at RIDE to be able to make adjustments with individuals if they weren't able to take an assessment, if they weren't able to meet a particular requirement because we didn't have access or something else was happening related to COVID. So this is just another, it is a topic, we didn't talk about this, so we wanted to come back tonight and engage you in this conversation um, around the residency requirement. 
the residency requirement was built into the regulations, not the most recent ones that you all adopted, but the version before that. So it was about 2018, 2019. We had started to do some good work. Joy is going to walk us through, although I think I need to introduce Joy because I don't think you've had Joy before you before. So Joy Souza is our Director of Educator Excellence and Certification Services. She's going to walk you through where we were, our original timeline, and what our new timeline is for meeting the residency requirement and working with our ed prep programs. Hello, everyone. As you can see from the slide here, we have two graphics. The one on top, which was our original implementation plan, and then the one at the bottom is the new timeline that we put in place. And so the residency requirement was scheduled to go into effect December 31st of 2022, but we will be extending that by two years, go into effect December 31st of 2024. However, we will be requiring all of our ed prep providers to pilot a scaled version of their plan effective December 31st of 2023, so the year prior to full implementation. And so you may be asking, why is that? Well, let me tell you. There are several reasons, the first being that this year in particular, EPPs have really been focused on their COVID-19 responses and to creating really the most quality plan that they can put in place to ensure that their candidates had valuable student teaching experiences throughout the pandemic. So planning for this new residency requirement has had to take a backseat for them. Also, RIDE needs to finalize guidance to get out to our EPPs so that they truly understand what the residency expectations are. And that guidance is almost ready to go out, so we're excited about that. But we know that once it's released, we're going to have to plan for individual meetings with each ed prep provider so we can talk about their individual programming, their unique programming, and support them in their planning process. And then from there, they need time to plan their residency models. And for most of them, they have to shepherd those plans through their institution's approval process. And for some of them, that approval process might be lengthy. So we wanted to recognize that. And we also feel that by giving them the opportunity to pilot their residency plan on a smaller scale the year prior, they'll be able to identify any challenges that might exist and make those adjustments before it goes into full implementation. And then lastly, the residency model, as with any student teaching plan, requires really strong partnerships with our LEAs. And so our ed prep providers are going to need the time to build those partnerships and to really help develop with LEAs support high-quality student teaching residency experiences. So those are all the reasons. Do you have any questions that we can answer? So I'm trying to do the math. Does this impact, then, the incoming freshman class? The way the requirement was originally set up is that it starts when somebody enters. So the requirement would be in place at the beginning of someone's path in a prep program, right? So that we're not changing their plan at the college midway through. Right. So does it impact, then, the incoming, next incoming class? It would be the incoming class of 2020. They would pilot 2023-24. So it would. And depending on whether you're in an undergrad or a one-year program, significantly impacts the same. If it's a freshman in 21. Yep. It wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. So it's not the incoming. It wouldn't be in place yet. It's not the incoming freshman class if you're looking at an undergrad. 
One of the items I will add as an example that the ed prep providers has raised, have raised with us is the way that they can go about designing residency and implementing a full-fledged kind of residency model is very different if you're in a four-year undergraduate sequence versus a one-year MAT. Um, and so we, you know, we too on our side, we have a little bit more work to do together to figure out what that looks like and how a couple of our MAT programs still within the time frame of their programming can also make this change to a more residency-based model. Um, we're, they're struggling, we're struggling a little bit there because we put it on pause in the meantime as well. And, and I think to a point that the commissioner has really underscored, we really wanna make sure we're providing support to them um, and so we want to take advantage of the opportunity once the guidance goes out to really be able to meet with each one of them individually. They all have very unique programs and we want to make sure that they feel supported and that we can address these questions that we might not necessarily have all of the answers right now. I don't know that we even have all of the questions yet, but they will come about as we have those individual meetings. Can I just get a 60 second vision or kind of view of what, what it is today and what we're trying to get to? Like, where's the gap with filling? Yeah, so the, uh, the prior version of the regulations, before we started to implement a residency requirement into the regulations, required a student teaching experience. And so it, it was no longer by weeks, it was by hours. Um, it was about 300 hours. And that was the requirement that was established in the certification regulations. Of course, in the implementation of an ed prep provider, that played out a little bit differently, right? Some did an intensive 10 weeks, some did a 12 weeks that was a four day, but over 12 weeks, so it looked a little bit different. What we moved to in the requirements is setting an expectation of a full year residency or equivalent. That's what the language actually says. So now the challenge for all of us is to try to figure out what does full year or equivalent look like if you're in an undergrad program, a one year MAT, a non-degree, just teach a certification pathway, a non-college based program, um, but everybody's expectation is to hit that one year or equivalent residency. So it's really, the goal was really to intentionally increase the field experience, practical experience of all of our ed prep providers. So it's really, if you're in a four year program, according to this timeline, it's not, uh, it's the class that's starting four years from now. Yes. Okay. It's from when they enter a program, not when they enter. Yeah, they college. may be. It's essentially, <laughs> essentially though, is they would be minimally sophomores. Most of them don't admit into schools of education as freshmen. I think those there is a subtle difference there. So, at most of our colleges, when you are admitted as a freshman, you're more admitted as a general education freshman. You apply in your sophomore year at most to become admitted into the School of Education. We have at least one college where that's not the case, where freshman admissions is concurrent with School of Education admissions. And so given some of, thank you, given some of the um, programs that are in development that look a little bit like concurrent or dual enrollment that are pathway programs, for example, where students may be starting some of that work in the high school, mm -hmm. um, that clearly that's gonna factor in. So when, you, when we think about, again, I, I'm, thank you for saying that it's upon acceptance into the program, if you will, because that, that equivalency word was a really big deal when we were talking about this whole thing. It was. 
rather than adding on an additional year, you know, creating a year-long program, thinking about what does that equivalency look like. So I'm just, as, I, as you're asking those questions, we're thinking about there could be students who are entering and go through a, a pathway program, and they may be starting right away. They may even have some credits toward that. I was going to say, hopefully they would already have some credits that they're bringing in at that point. And they would have had some field experience. That's exactly correct. To bring to that as well. As much as the, um, the challenge of creating what it looks like, it is a challenge. Does the, the challenge that I know we've experienced in the past, whether, whether it's through a college or superintendents, is placements. Mm -hmm. And so what I wonder is, you know, how aware are the districts, the superintendents, that this is coming down the road, mm -hmm. that they need to be partners in this process? Mm -hmm. And our ed prep providers have spoken um, to us about that, like needing our support in getting the communication out to our LEAs and kind of helping to support them and opening their doors because you might have to take on, uh, you're taking on student teachers now for a much longer period of time and so that's going to require communication to families. Um, it's a different ask of a teacher versus only taking them for you know half of the year or a quarter of the year. Um, so we understand that we need to play a big role in that as well, and that's where that support piece comes in. But that's why we also need the additional time. So exposure. I was one of those superintendents that had <laughs> yeah. some barriers up to this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, it's, we wanted to interview the candidates before they came to our district, yeah. and so that was yeah. one of the place. And so there is going to be some pushback. Uh, right. If you have someone for a year and they're awesome, that's wonderful. If you have someone for a year and they're not, that's also it's to professional development again as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A huge piece of that. It really does require a partnership. Our success with the residency requirement that we built in requires the partnership between the districts and the EPPs. We, will, we won't be successful if we are not helpful in establishing those partnerships for the very points have that we, you made. Have we looked at, you know, um, if just taking this year and the number of placements that are needed, or two years or three mm -hmm. years, placements that are needed, number of students in a program, mm -hmm. but, and actually opportunities that exist just in Rhode Island and is it really doable? Yeah, I mean it is doable, one, but absolutely the EPPs, especially the larger ones, I mean they have been adding that up ever since the regulations <laughs> passed that started to, you know, foreshadow that we would be going down this road and starting to look at how many candidates they have every year, in what cert areas, and how many placements, and where is it a struggle, and what will that, and what will that look like, absolutely. What I remember is that there are teachers that love having student teachers and placements and there are others that don't mm -hmm. and there were many that will raise their hands and have six and seven of them in the school year that you know that's a concern for a superintendent one teacher having six or seven student teachers when is that teacher teaching mm -hmm. and so i just bring all of those concerns to our attention just as we plan and move forward mm -hmm. that we've got to be understand that the districts are going to have a big role in this mm -hmm. and superintendents need to be engaged in the conversation sooner or later if they're not already. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they were very engaged when we went through the regulatory process too, by the way. Um, Have they thought it out? <laughs> <laughs> Always the second very good point. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, start on right away. All right, we'll move to our next discussion item, revised educator certification assessment. Lisa, again. You're still at the table with Joy Souza Rives, Director of Education Excellence and Certification Services. I wish there was a way to shorten that. <laughs> so this is a preview. Um, this will come back at your next meeting because we do need to ask you to 
take a vote and make an approval. So I just want to let you know that you'll have another bite of the apple if you have questions. Um, I'm going to kick it over to Joy again, but as you're probably used to, some of you at this point have been on the, on the council for a while. Every time we have a test change, so if ETS regenerates their assessment for educators, sets a new score, um, we come to you. So to share what those changes are, um, to share the score, and that's what you have in front of you. There's no slide for this. You have the memo and then you have a chart in your packet that includes the two tests we're talking about tonight and the scores that came out of the study. All right, so ETS, um, who's the creator of the practice test, um, they're committed to making sure that the content is the most up-to-date and aligned to professional standards. So every year um, they review their tests and they, when necessary, they decide to either update the test or to regenerate the test um, based on what teachers need to know and be able to do relative to the Common Core state standards. Um, states are involved in this process because they're able to nominate educators who either serve on the test development standing committees or on the multi-state study committees with ETS. Um, over the past year, multi-state standard setting studies were conducted for both of the math tests that you'll, you'll see on the document in front of you. So it was the um, middle school math and the secondary math content knowledge tests. Um, and from there, they made the determination to regenerate both of the tests um, and also set new um, cut score recommendations based on the new tests. So you'll see 157 for the middle school um, test is the recommendation and then 159 for the math content knowledge for secondary. Um, so if approved, we plan on letting prep programs know that candidates entering as of September 1st will take the new tests. Um, and then we'll also monitor um, educator pass rates over the next year. Um, and if we feel that any adjustments need to be made to the cut scores, then we will come back to the council um, in the future to recommend those adjustments. Is Massachusetts part of the multi-state? Massachusetts runs their own educator testing program. They develop their own tests. The MTELs are a Massachusetts-only <coughs> testing system. Okay, so they're not part so of it. So who, who, what other states are looking at these cut scores? Um, so they're total generally with ETS. There are about 30-some-odd states around the country that use ETS for their educator licensure. I think you said in this case there were 11. Yeah, so as of right now, I just talked to ETS yesterday, and 11 states have adopted the new tests to go into effect September 1st. Um, nine of those 11 states have adopted them with the recommended cut scores. The other two states, they wouldn't tell us which states they were or what cut scores they'll be using. They're not allowed to re release that information yet. Um, but they believe that all of the states that subscribe to ETS tests will adopt the new tests. That's generally what happens when they regenerate tests. And how often is the test regenerated? It's usually a five-year cycle. For most of their assessments, they're on about a five-year cycle. They will review student standards and any educator standards that have changed in that time, and then regenerate the test and pull a group of educators together to reestablish a score. At one time, did we have higher, higher cut scores than the recommended? So at one time, and what you're remembering is a while ago, but yes, at one time, not, a, not across the board, um, but at one time we had recommended to the council higher scores than what were coming out of the multi-state study. That has not been the case in at least, I wanna say four years. Um, every time we've come before the council in the last four years or so, they've been the, the multi-state study recommendation. Any other questions? 
Okay, thank you. We'll move to our next discussion item, Providence Update. Sure. I'm going to ask you for a little patience around this presentation because I think um, this is not how I was going to start off, but I think I have to recap this week for everyone. I have gotten so many phone calls from Latino parents about the disrespect that I have been shown personally by people in leadership. You have been at this table with me the entire year. Meeting after meeting, we have surpassed every benchmark. But personal attacks on my name, my accent, it's not okay. It's not okay. I look like the kids that we are failing. It is not okay. I have kept my mouth closed, lies after lies after lies, and guess what? They are lies. And we're going to go through it, and I'm going to ask you for the patience so you can hear the work that has been done. But I heard families yesterday mobilizing because they're so upset teachers that have come to me apologize. Some of you at the forums that we had, parents got up and said, are you going to talk about the elephant in the room? And they said, they're going to come after you. It's going to be personal. And they also said, I'm afraid to speak up because of retaliation. I couldn't understand that. In those sessions, we talked about that. Parents feeling retaliated against by adults. But there has been a public display of what that is. Very public. I have to tell you, what happened with Harrison doesn't hurt anyone more than it hurts me. I put my reputation on the line. I worked countless hours to make sure that we had a superintendent in there that can do the job. He made a mistake. And he made a mistake and jeopardized me. Doesn't pain anyone more than me. If I could go back, we'd do all this differently. But the personal attacks, never in my life. And these are the same people that teach our kids. That is what's wrong with a broken system. And yes, my name is Angelica. It has an accent on the E and it is extremely disrespectful. I try to build trust with the community. And just to be clear for everyone, I met with community leaders, I met with parents, I met with students, and I met with teachers. You saw the survey rates data. Those are teachers inputting that. It can't be that everything is wrong. It can't be that we can't acknowledge progress. You're gonna see three principals today, and the only reason I invited them is because I went to a principal meeting yesterday. 
and they said, Commissioner, can you please talk about the progress that we have made? And I said, no, you talk about the progress we have made. You talk about what has happened. Our state has risen above the national average for the first time. You don't have to like me, but I'm here to do a job and I'm here to do it collaboratively. And if we want to speak truths, we're in the middle of a union negotiation. That historically, because I went back, takes two years. Name calling, not okay, guys. Not okay. I'm the first commissioner of color. Don't think that that doesn't escape everyone. Because it doesn't. So I want you to give me the respect and the time to go over what actually has happened. Just because you say it on Twitter doesn't make it true. And let me tell you, I cried many a night with this situation with Harrison. So no one here can tell me that they're more devastated than I am. Because I made a promise and I intend to keep it to the family and the community. Emily, please start it. So let's, let's talk about this. 1993, there was a report. And for there to be a report written, this has been going on for a very long time. The Johns Hopkins report mirrored that report. Do we want to pretend that that's not happening? We have said that this is not about one person. This is a system that is dysfunctional and is broken. And from what we've seen online, that is very clear. Let's remind everybody why we took the steps to intervene problems. What do we think those kids look like in all those one-star and two-star schools? When we talk about decades of neglect and lost generations, the Dunkin' Donuts Center cannot fill the dropout rate that we've had. since all this has been happening. Go to the next one. Let's not forget. I'm not gonna go over all the scores with you, but you can see single digits, single digits. None of you would be okay with this for your kids. November 2019. This board deemed it necessary to do that. In February, we got a superintendent. In February. One month later, one month, 
currently. One month later, we had a pandemic. In that pandemic, you heard Ramona sometime in, like in May, had done all the work with the community groups. They said, we have to finish the turnaround action plan. And this was three months after being in the pandemic. And I said, guys, we're going to have to table this for a little bit. And they said, no. And we finished the turnaround action plan in June 2020, in the height of the pandemic. Two months later, in December, we put out our first report, which you have a summary of all the accomplishments in 10 months. Talking about decades of neglect. So you've seen the turnaround action plan heard Ramona talk earlier. That was created by the community. This is a commitment that we made to the community. And we have measures, we have timelines, we even have people responsible, and we go through every measure weekly. That's where I participate and where I have been. I wish I would have been part of the hiring, but I was part of the work that was happening. So here, we just talked about curriculum. I think you've heard that we did, we implemented a gold standard curriculum, K through eight, everything, soups and nuts. And we also got culturally responsive books. And you heard one of the teachers say, oh, we had, we had curriculum. Yeah, they can list 15 of them. I'm going to go back to our Johns Hopkins report because I want you to hear what was in the Johns Hopkins report. And the sad part is that we heard it today again as, as something that was actually in place. This was our report from Johns Hopkins. Incoherent use of high quality curriculum and, and different curriculums, even in the same grade level in the same schools. So what did we do? We implemented a curriculum K to eight for the entire district. Not just the curriculum, but PD. And why is that important in a district like Providence? No, go back. In a district like Providence? Because kids are highly mobile. So the fact that we heard tonight, the listing of all curriculum, we're still not understanding the needs of an urban community. There needs to be a common curriculum. And we chose American Reading Company. Why? Because we brought 100 educators together to select that. So this was not done in a vacuum. And we selected it because it comes in Spanish. When 70% of your population is Latino, that makes sense. And that's no small feat. For those of you that have been superintendents, you know that's not a small feat. And we allocated $4 million because this was important. The next piece is we redesigned our highest neediest schools. Hope High School to be an IB school. Do you know what that means? 
Do you know what a big deal that is? Right now, the only option for a parent is classical. And if you don't get in, then what? So this is about creating options for parents. CTE, we only have PCTA right now. And some of the offers of PCTA is not really what the market is requesting. So we have revamped that. But not only PCTA, JSAC and EQ. This is something this board cares about, that we talk about all the time. So I need us to look at the truth. We started a ninth grade academy at Alvarez High School. Why? Because we know our kids are behind. We needed to take that cohort and give them supports. Then, classroom boost grants. We actually gave grants to the teachers to be innovative in their classroom. <clears throat> Money to pilot things in their classroom that they've always wanted to do. Teachers, we're not telling them what to do. We're letting them use their expertise. They can work together. We've encouraged them. Then we have a new network team that works with the schools individually, and you're going to hear from the principals. And what is in the pipeline? Now high school curriculum. Talking to the parents of what they want to see for these new high schools. We started our first dual language middle school. That has done more for all the kids in the district than any other program. Our goal is to make sure that all our kids are bilingual. And we are starting, and you know that we approved your grants statewide. The other piece that's really important is that now there's a math and literacy coach in middle and high school, and I've included in there all the postings for these positions. 22 counselors in every elementary school, we put counselors. We talk a lot about social emotional here. 22 counselors, one counselor in every school. That has never happened before. 27 culture and community support roles. Those are people from the community that are gonna be in the schools helping, being that liaison. Those postings are in your binder as well. Cascading one-to-one -one network coaching. Teachers. On to the next one. I'm gonna refer back to the Johns Hopkins report. Parents feel that there's an absence of parent-teacher conferences at the school level, and they struggle to obtain even an annual report card. For the first time, we required parent-teacher conferences. For the first time. Never happened before. There was a teacher that came out today that said that she, she attends. But prior to this year, that's not what the attendance was. Parents would show up and there was no teacher. Principals were actually pasting which of the teachers that were going to be there so parents wouldn't waste their time going. Not only that, we also heard that the district was so dysfunctional, so we created customer service standards for how we're going to work with families. And we have benchmarks and we have a 24-hour turn, a turnaround. Our parent academy 
we included, and I, and I won't go over it in the next slide, we included parents can get college credit and they can get job-based um, um, certification for jobs within their parent academy. That didn't happen either. New district-wide community and student advisory groups. So we have the Student Advisory Council, ninth grade ambassadors that are gonna help us reshape what that looks like for the incoming classes and district-wide advisory council of students. And every school participates because what would happen, there was one council, is that it was only one or two students and it was only the highest performing students. So we saw from increased family engagement, right? 36% in survey works went up. Do you know what the district did? They went to supermarkets. They went to laundromats. They went to where the community is. The new parent office, that's what they did. The other piece that we heard, and it was also part of what we heard in those seminars, is that parents wanted kids not to walk two miles to go to school. Guess what? That doesn't happen anymore. One mile away from school. That's what we've done. We realigned our funding to go from 3,000 students to 5,700 students being able to ride the bus. Again, those of you that have been superintendents, you know how hard that is. That is not something that's easy. And it is expensive. And that's exactly what we did. We reallocated, there were no new funds. We reallocated the funds. We found cost savings at the district. We also are creating community impact grants so the community can work with our schools, giving the community those grants. Expanded opportunities for the Parent Academy. I told you a little bit about that. And a parent's resource center so parents can work with other community groups and get services throughout the city in our hub. The next piece. We went from 102 vacancies in a pandemic. Do we know what that means? You guys heard those of you that were there, because I'm going to go refer back to when we went out. There were kids that never had a teacher. They had three and four cells in one year. We were able to do that during a pandemic. The turnaround has been during a pandemic. ESL teachers, we all know we're under corrective action from the Department of Justice. We paid for 125 teachers last year and 125 teachers to get certification this year. Those are facts. We can say whatever we want, but these are facts. We revamped our HR office and we have three recruiters now. One for elementary, one for middle, and one for high school. So we can close those gaps. Also, increased our number of teachers of color, and we'll give you those numbers. And every teacher or every staff member that gets hired in the district has to undergo bias training. 
every single one of them. The other piece is that we heard from teachers that getting the ESL certification, not only was it expensive, so we put in money, but also felt that they didn't want travel, that they have other, other obligations. So we are creating an in-house ESL certification process in the district. Providence out of 11 districts, only was one out of 11 districts nationwide to receive $10 million to launch a leadership residency program. We don't have a bench of leaders. Principal performance and retention bonuses. Yeah, we did that this year. That was hard, but we had to get a commitment from them that they were gonna champion equity, that they were gonna to commit to coaching for themselves, for the teachers, feedback to the teachers to learn to do all these things. We wanted to do it for the teachers as well, but we were not allowed. District systems. In the Johns Hopkins report, they said that principals had to go through 75 steps to order anything. We redesigned the procurement process because this is about systems, guys. This isn't personal. This is about systems. Capital plan. We began this capital plan, and you heard a couple of meetings ago that we were giving away buildings. We're not giving away buildings. And swing space. Patty, we actually modeled after you. Providence didn't have swing space, so we did that because we followed what you did in Pawtucket. What did we also do? Obviously, we reopened schools. There was 38 million in PPE alone, instructional technology. We got teachers, not the Chromebooks, but laptops. <clears throat> we bought winter coats for the kids, hotspots. We went into people's houses. I sat, I sat in, in, in living rooms with parents. We also got speakers that we mounted to the ceiling because the masks were difficult. That happened. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. 40%, we put more money. What did we hear here? And what did we hear? That the city was paid for, what was it? Moderately dingy. We changed that. That's the truth. And we invested the money. This money was already in the district. We reallocated, we reshifted on what was important. We renegotiate contracts to try to get better prices and better services. I have to tell you that some of the people that were providing the cleaning that was not doing their job. We had to bring somebody in to monitor what they were doing. Annual budget process at the school level so they can be transparent at the school level where the money's going. And the craziest of them all is the payroll process. We had school support staff come into the district with paper copies of payroll. I don't know about you, but that's very 1980s maybe. When I was in a school, we had the mimeographs. The next one you'll see that, and you've seen this one before, Everybody has an owner for everything in the tax plan. And we meet weekly 
and we figure out where we are, what we're doing, and if we're falling behind, what we're going to do. Capital plan. KPSC has 278 million capital plan. We expanded it to 300 million, split over two phases, 160 million in phase one, 140 million in phase two. So let's think about this. Patty, I talked about the swing space. I remember you were in the district when I went and visited your new building. And I thought, why couldn't Providence do this? And I thought it was a building that was built, but it was redone. So why couldn't we do that? We got swing space. Windmill hasn't been used for years. We got that as swing space. For those of you that don't know, swing spaces will move those kids there for a year. Well, we can actually work during the school year instead of just in the summer and after school. So we did that. We got St. Joe's Hospital, which will be a K-8 school. It's going to replace Spaziano Annex. That's falling apart. I also want to show you, those of you that went to the Hope, if you've ever been into my office, I have that chair framed in my window to remind me that Hope High School couldn't use their auditorium, guys. They didn't have an auditorium because it was falling apart. And while we were there with parents, the, the ceiling was falling on us. So I want you to take your phone right now because this is happening this summer. Take it a seat and put it together. Take your phone. Victor, help me out here. Open your camera. Open your camera. Open your camera. <laughs> and then hover over that little square that's either on the presentation in front of you. Yep. And then tell us. copyright. So you can do it. So if you move your phone around, it gives oh, you a cool. view of what that is. And construction is starting this summer. Hope will be able to use the auditorium for the first time. I think this is the chair my father sat <laughs> It might be. I have to see it on your wall. The complaints that we're hearing, they're real, guys. We're not denying that that, that needs to be worked, but this is what this is going to look like. See, we're, we're getting, we're getting. Now you're going to distract me, though. That's not good. All right. Look at the chair. Look at the chairs. Okay. Wow. The other piece is. I went to Brown, I think, after I went to Hope, two weeks after I went to Hope, I met with President Paxson. And I brought her into Hope High School, and I brought her in to the library. Can we go to the next slide? Yes. Sorry. This is what the library looked like. This week, we are going to unveil that library. On Tuesday. We're going to unveil that library. You can't see it too well here, but they have those big green metal bookshelves from the 70s <laughs> and the floor and everything. But this is the completed library. Well, I don't know about that. So the other piece is this is what we were known for. The Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post. We have a long way to go. 
but we have built a strong infrastructure. And this is what they're saying about us now. Look at the next page. Providence was one of the few urbans in the United States that was able to open during a pandemic. So I have to tell you, this is the work that has happened in the last 14 months, 10 of which have been during a pandemic. And we're not going to let these families down. We're just not going to do it. And the principal said, ask me yesterday, please share the good things that we're doing. No, you share it. So now I have the pleasure of introducing to you, and I will not speak anymore, I promise. Three of our amazing principals that are going to share the work that they have been doing. So we have Cynthia Torres, Tim, who is so animated, you're going to enjoy him, and Robbie from PCTA. So Cynthia, why don't you start? <laughs> Good evening. Can you talk a little louder, Cynthia? Yeah. Thank you. And that's not a problem at school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good evening, and thank you for having us. Uh, I want to share, I'm a first-year principal in Providence. Uh, I've been a part of the Providence community for 20 years. I started in the district as a teacher assistant. And this is my first year as a, um, as a principal in an elementary school. We need to celebrate good things that are happening, and that is due to the resilience, tenacity, um, resourcefulness, growth mindset of our students, our teachers, and our community. We started this year in March. Reservoir Avenue Elementary, we started with 14% of our students reading at grade level, according to Irma. As of today, 56.7% of our students are reading at grade level, according to Irma. That is a great achievement. And uh, it could not have been done without the work that we're doing in our schools. We have done a lot of work with our teachers around Common Core Standards, getting to know our Common Core Standards, unpacking Common Core Standards, and instructional uh, strategies to meet the needs of all our students. The climate and culture um, has, as we heard in our uh, school works report, went up. And more than 10%. We received a visit from school work and they gave us two areas of strength, classroom climate and common core implementation. For us, that's a great achievement. As a first year principal, I have received coaching and that has provided me with a focus to lead around instruction. So those are just a few uh, of the great things that are happening in our schools. Bobby, do you want to talk a little bit? Because I know Tim has some slides to share. 
but we can work collaboratively with each other to improve the quality of our craft and thus do justice to those students whose future is kind of sacred to us. So we have had that. My administrators have a coach, I have a coach, and every teacher has a coach. Just to give you an anecdotal, there's a teacher I was in a class, and as I observed the instruction, I finished, and I was already a little bit despondent because the teacher was talking for the snapshot of 20 minutes for 95% of the time. So I pulled the teacher in great lesson. He, he, taught, he taught a great lesson with great activities, except he was talking, and he was getting smarter, not the kids. So I asked him, what do you think about this lesson you provided? Talk to me about the preparation. Well, he talked about all these things, all these things, a lot of knowledge. I said, okay, what do you think your students learned? He said, well, I, I think uh, they showed that they understood. And I asked him, what is the evidence you have? Couldn't find out what the evidence was. I said, this is what we wanted. Uh, you got the next period coming. I want you to record your instruction, an audio recording of your instruction. And then at the end of the day, we'll debrief. Telling you folks, when we sit in that office, the teacher said to me, he shook his head. And I said, what is the learning that you have had? He said, I noticed that for the 15 minutes I was there, I spoke 95% of the time. Therefore, there was no opportunity for me to see if the students were understanding what it is that I was teaching. I have nothing to demonstrate in terms of the learning. This is the kind of work that we have been trained since the beginning of this year to do, because the focus is on quality of learning, and quality of learning occurs when you have quality instruction. So this teacher actually this morning came to my office and said, I want you back tomorrow, because I have designed a lesson with a lot of to allow students to explore, to socialize their intelligence, and then I will come in to synthesize if they need some adjustment with respect to the standards. Okay, you should invite her to one of our other meetings so she can share that experience. As we will do just that. And this is my goal and the goal of my team to continue to provide each other with support, with feedback, so that we can continue to improve the craft. And we know we are poised, once the pandemic is over, to start yielding great performance from our students across all metrics because quality teaching is going to result in quality learning, and the standards are the benchmark by which we're going to use to measure those metrics. And I thank you, Commissioner, for putting this focus on instructional quality and learning. And then all the other technical fix as the building, you have the capital, you have the money, you invest, a building is not good, you can fix it. But if the mindset, the belief of teaching is not right, nothing will happen despite the fact that the buildings are beautiful and fancy. So I truly appreciate your leadership and don't let anybody push you around because you're the real thing. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> um, Tim? Yes, ma'am. That's going to be hard to follow. <laughs> <laughs> so is someone going to load my slides or do I have to screen share? Because I was not ready to screen share. I didn't, we do not have your slides on this end. If you could screen share, that would be great. Alrighty, so I might have to join from a second computer. Just a little transparency, because I'm on an iPad. So if you give me a couple seconds. We are definitely ready to adapt. Oh yeah. Um, Emily? Yep. 
Can you ping him when he shares the slides so the, the presentation will be bigger? Ping <coughs> him. When he, um, make him bigger. What did I say? Ping oh. it? Ping him. Uh, oh, no, once he, once he shares, it'll be yeah, good. Okay. Yeah, 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 don't worry. Oh, it'll take I'm on, I'm on my way in, yeah. No worries, Sam. Oh, my God. It's all right. We've been waiting 30 years. We could wait a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll probably have to bring him in currently. Well, he's putting that up. I, I wanted to give this out because we did not have it before. But this is all the teachers of color that we've been able to hire, the staff of color at PPSB. All right, he's got it. Thank you. All right, Tim, thank you. All right, can you all hear me? Yes. All right. If you hear your echo, let me know. I'll turn off one of my audios. No, you're good. All right. So I do want to say, uh, I do want to echo and say that I, I really want to thank the commissioner because um, she's given me all the resources to um, be successful. And this is just me presenting. But to be clear, this is the teacher's hard work, uh, the students' hard work and dedication to themselves and the support of the commissioner. Um, that's the reason why I'm presenting tonight. And this is the right work, always been the right place. But now I believe it's the right leadership to actually make us uh, successful. Um, so starting on this, I really want to preface, it's been three things that's really made this work successful. And, and again, with the teachers, it's been that high quality curriculum um, and having school-wide fidelity to it, knowing that the teachers have a resource that they can rely on that's going to help drive student learning, and, and they believe in it. Also, teachers trusting us as leaders to give them the feedback around their impact using data and not just our gut, um, and collecting that data together off of this high quality program. And then lastly, I think it's most important, is coaching with accountability to that coaching. Both I get coaching because I'm a lead learner, and it's not just talking the talk, but it's walking the walk. And you can't coach others if you don't know what it feels like to be coached. Um, and combining that with professional development for myself and the teachers. Um, because coaching is really having a thought partner to push my thinking. Um, it's not about right or wrong, but it's about best to better. And that's really what I feel has been the, the message for me this year is, you do well, but how do we go from best to better? Um, and I always say the best coach in my life uh, is my life has been my wife. Um, it's never been easy coaching, but I'm here because of that critical feedback. Um, and it's been 25 years of it, and I think we're stronger because of it. So I just want to throw that in there. Uh, so now I'll begin my presentation. So really, uh, what it was, <laughs> what it was is, is we we set a goal of, of having growth of one one year, and, and that means. Your kids have grown a full year. I entered sixth grade and I left a seventh grader. Well, in Providence, we're closing gaps. We have to close gaps because our kids are coming in behind. So we hit our gap of closing, of, of growing a year almost by, by mid-March. And what we've done is we've actually exceeded one year. So we have started to catch up our sixth, seventh, and eighth graders in reading, both for our language learners and our core students across the school. We've done this in ELA. Um, so I want to show you, this is just the district scores. Um, if you have like, maybe have your screen up, your, the bottom is a little bit blocked out. But what you're seeing is as a district, we're having almost a year's growth. And that hasn't happened in a long time in this district. So across the board, as a district, we're growing as a community. But really what it is, is looking at our school individually and really talking about the practices, those three things, what I said, and really honing in on them. 
we've grown more in sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade than the district combined. We've actually, in eighth grade, doubled the learning of the eighth graders. So eighth graders have closed not only one year, but a second year. They've made up for that. And that, again, is, is the dedication to that curriculum, the coaching, and the teachers really embracing the fact that they have an impact on the students, and then they coach the students in the way I coach them. It's not doing anything different then I just ask them to emulate the coaching I receive. I emulate it with the teachers, and the teachers emulate it. It's the I do, it's the we do, I do, we do, you do mentality, and we all do the same thing around that same curriculum. Again, that same growth is happening with our MLL students. The MLL students are growing across the district, but our kids at, at Essex Hopkins Middle School have closed almost another year and a half. So they've closed that gap, and they started to catch up to their peers, and eventually they're going to catch up and go beyond them. Again, this just breaks it down a little bit farther. Um, so our non-MLLs is what we consider our core, and our MLLs are our language learners. In each grade, except for sixth grade, we're, we're closing those gaps where our MLL learners, especially in seventh grade, are learning more than our core. So we need to drill down to really find those practices and celebrate those teachers and the kids for the hard work they're doing. And this is where we're, our job this year as leaders is to look deep down to find out what we did well and systemize those things and spread those practices because it's already happening in our school and it's happening across our school and not just in one pocket. It goes back to mindset. I think this is something we talked about, uh, me being an adoptive father. I, I, I walked in on day one and said, every kid in this school is my child. Treat them as if when I walk the hall, you're talking to their parent. And I think this is the data that shows that. We're the red line you know, that shows how many kids in our school got failing grades. And I, I, I looked each teacher and I who, who gave me that progress report, you know, that they were going to fail in the first quarter and said, talk to me as I'm, I'm dad. Why are you failing this child? What am I going to do to support you as the principal? Because I'm the father that could walk the halls and support you as a parent. Um, and I think having only 5% of 500 kids getting a failing grade shows that they took that challenge and their heart is real. And they took the practices that they wanted to do as educators and combine them as parents. And I think this is the data that I'm most proud of beyond growth is its mindset. Character is mindset is the one thing I cannot coach. It's the one thing I can ask you to be better and reflect on. The skill is what we're really coaching. And I think we have good, high-quality educators with good character, great mindset, and we finally started to give them the curriculum and coaching that they asked for, and this is the result. Um, again, it shows just another graph of we are not failing our kids, both in mindset or in grade and function. Um, we do a lot of makeup work because it's the pandemic. Kids have struggled. My own daughter who struggles to get online and I fight with her in my own home has missed assignments. So I create that same system of how pandemic and giving opportunities to make up work, be a human and recuperate and restore back into that good grace, both with behavior, but also with the academics and learning and having that philosophy of restoration. And this is really how we do it. It's just celebrating each day, making sure kids enjoy it. We have meetings no matter where we're at. And I really, I want to put this Twitter link up um, because really we celebrate ourselves, we celebrate what we do, we celebrate the kids and we ask the kids to celebrate. We celebrate academics as much as we celebrate the social emotional. Um, so that's just a little bit about what we're doing and the great stuff. So I, I, like I said, I invite everyone to come to our school because it's always an open door. So this is our update. I shared with you the number of staff of color that we have in our district. And I will say, change. Thank you. 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 Great job.
So, one of the I was still a superintendent, I'd be stealing those. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. But we have lots of people like that. And, and, you know, and the difference is, and I will tell you that we've had to let people go. We're looking for people of quality. I don't care if you live here. I don't care if you look a certain way. We need people that can do the job. And that's going to be hard and it's going to be painful. But we have a responsibility to kids, all of us. So I wanted you to have all the information because people say, what has gotten done during a pandemic? You have it all here in black and white. And the interesting part is that survey works independently is saying the same thing. Because we've heard that this is propaganda, that this is not. No, we see it in other measures too. So what I'm asking us is to really think about the work that we need to do. And let's work together. We're not going to get there. We're not working together. Any questions? Questions? Discussion? Until we, we remember games. Yes, I just remind, I see Angela is on, to send me copies of the handouts. <laughs> we will. We're sending Andy over with them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in your house tomorrow, please. <laughs> okay, thank you. He's bringing coffee, too. <laughs> thank you. Um, first of all, thank you. I don't know if the principals are still on, but thank you. Um, I was lucky enough, and so were a few of other people at the table, um, to visit uh, two schools a couple of weeks ago um, who had similarly dynamic principals, very engaged teachers and students. We went to JSEC and we went to uh, Leviton, yes, the dual language school. And what we saw was amazing and it's wonderful to hear the kinds of things that are going on um, that if we had visited those schools, I would be saying the same thing. And, and I think that's absolutely tremendous. A couple of years ago, um, and maybe we should reinstitute this when we think about what are we going to do going forward. Um, I recall that under Commissioner Wagner, we had some periodic visits from the team from Providence. Oh, and so we had, uh, and it was an interesting makeup. And a couple of weeks ago, I think, I think we're all still on Zoom, um, but we had a report um, around the progress that you've just talked about um, and documented so well. Thank okay. you. Um, when we had those other meetings, we had um, a team that was made up of both central office people, school people, both administrators and teachers. And as we hear about the family um, engagement, it would be great if we could do that periodically. Because Absolutely. One of the things I think, and, and, and this is wonderful information to have, I wish we had it more regularly. I wish that we could have a more focused agenda sometimes so that we could hear this and, and really feel more confident just by the data and what we're hearing and seeing from, from everyone. And I think, you know, um, it really is unfortunate to hear some of the things that you said earlier. It's painful. And I think, unfortunately, there are other people who are feeling pain at the same time. Absolutely. This is a very difficult time, whether it's what's going on in the schools or what's going on in the pandemic. <clears throat> and I think when you ask about, um, we talk about all of these great things, I think still we all bear some responsibility here. And, and I think that when we all um, agreed, I think it was unanimously, about the um, 
energy that we hope to bring to the takeover and the hope that we had about the takeover, we also vested in you the authority to, um, if you will, oversee, <coughs> operationalize, however we want to take it. So for the good, the bad, and the ugly, mm -hmm. as you well know, um, and so thank you for all of the progress that has been made. I do think it's important for us that we don't abrogate our responsibility either. Um, you cannot be superwoman. You need this team. And so the questions that are being asked um, shouldn't just land on you. There are people asking about what's our responsibility, where were we, who made the decisions, for example, about you know, the actions that needed to be taken with the superintendent. Um, who was consulted about that? I think at the last meeting you mentioned consulting with the community members. Yeah, I consulted with community members, with teachers, with parents, and with students. But we did not have a meeting about that. And so that's one of the things that, that I get asked, I know, about where were we? Who made the decision, for example, um, around the $170,000? Did we vest that authority in just one person? Where's our responsibility in collaborating with you, in deliberating over uh, a pretty important decision around that? And so I think those are some of the questions that need to be answered. This is not, in my mind, uh, as much about you as it is about us. Where is our responsibility? Um, I don't know um, whether or not the chair and the commissioner were talking about that and if you were involved in the decision making. But I'm wondering, when I think about my experience, I'm with superintendents here, you know, um, my experience in a school district is that decisions like that, critical decisions about hiring, critical decisions about actions that need to be taken for whatever reason about future employment, big decisions around significant expenditures of funds are very often recommended by the superintendent or the leader, in this case the commissioner, and brought to the school committee, in this case the K-12 council, for affirmation, for decision making. And I'm just thinking, I know that when I voted yes um, to vest you with that operational authority, I didn't think that we were going to wait 18 a year six months even to get this kind of information and to help you make decisions we're vested with this authority under the law and i just think this is not personal for me this is about what is our collective responsibility and i don't think it's wrong in fact i think it's our responsibility to ask those questions and then to say going forward as you just said and that's what made me think of it this way yeah, what yeah, do yeah. we do so let me clarify a couple of things this is not the first time you're hearing this information there have been four presentations. Yes, there have. This is so, incredible detail. No, we put it all in one place. But no, it, it, we, you have heard maybe five new things here that have just happened in the last few weeks. You've heard all of this. This is not coming to you for the first time. Absolutely not. No, I didn't think it is. The other piece, and I agree, I agree. The judgment was made by the lawyers, not by me. I'm not involved in how things play out in terms of payout and the, that kind of work. That happens with the lawyers. I was not involved in that. It is a very delicate matter and would probably cost the district two times or three times as much. Absolutely. We know that. We know that. And I'm not going to point to you, but <laughs> I just, we know they're there. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm working in good faith for the district. Should I have been part of the hiring? 
Absolutely. I should have been. I should have been. I trusted Harrison. I should have been. I don't take that obligation off myself. But what we need to understand, there's a superintendent running the day-to-day. That's part of what the work is. Moving forward, we already started. Anna, Kelvin, part of all the hiring. Every one of them already started. And, and a big issue in Providence was that the school committee was interfering with the administration's ability to make decisions, and now we are not going to, to take over that role. That does not make sense. I think, Commissioner, in fairness, you've tried to shoulder too much of this on your own. And, and while I respect and admire it, it, is, it has created an opportunity for certain people to use it to, to formulate their own narrative. Mm-hmm. And so I, I agree with Colleen. I think targeted meetings in Providence schools. I don't want mm-hmm. people coming here. Love Let's go to their schools. That would be Not great. 17 things on the agenda. We mm-hmm. don't reach it till 7.30 at night. I know I was rude to the woman from SurveyWorks, and I apologize, but... You know, we need to get to what's important, and it needs to be focused. And so I I think at least a quarterly meeting in a Providence school where we are given a, a you know, yes, I've I've heard most of this before. This is not new. No. You have given this information. We have celebrated the successes. But if it needs to be targeted in a school where the community gets to come. And I think that's mm-hmm. what's important. We can't host them here. Yep. Let's go to the, the community and let love them that. speak at the meetings because they will. And, and, and that way, let us bear some of the burden of these decisions, of the work that needs to be done, and most importantly, the communication that needs to be had with legislators that we talk to, yep. other interested people, where I'm saying, no, what, what you heard is not even close to true. And so it gives us that ability to clarify what may not be accurately portrayed in the community. Agreed. Agreed. We can do that. And we need to be able to answer questions. And sometimes when we don't have that information, I've been asked, I don't know how many times, where did the $170,000 come from? Whose budget? Providence's budget? Our budget? I have no idea. I can't answer that question. And people look at me and say, well, you're, you're on the board. You're supposed to know the answer to that question. And I think we are supposed to know. Yeah, it's coming from the district. Ben Roperto? Amy's right in the sense of, and I know the superintendents, now that they're retired, would probably agree, a lot of the problem sometimes is school committees interfere, but that's how we have it set up in Rhode Island, good, bad, or indifferent. Mm -hmm. School committees make that decision, and superintendents make the recommendation. I think where we have fallen apart, and I'll take the blame for that too, for not pushing more, I think the 170,000 and the superintendent in Providence should come here to be approved. Um, I don't want to get involved with hiring principals or anything like that. But when you get to the top, I don't think it can be, yeah, we all have lawyers in our organizations, but at least in my organization, lawyers don't make the final decision. They make a recommendation. Uh, and then I present it to my board. In this case, the board now in Providence, because the mayor, and, and the Providence School Committee has abdicated their authority and given it to us. So we now have it. And I think going to what the two of you just said, 
the commissioner, you own the 170000 you own the superintendent, whatever. Good, bad, or indifferent, and mistakes are made mm-hmm. that I don't have. But somebody else should own that as well. That's it. And some of those decisions, like I think the next superintendent uh, in Providence should come here because we no longer have a school committee in Providence. Somebody else has to be part of that decision-making so that one person doesn't own it. Because if you talk about systems and say the commissioner leaves tomorrow or next week or the other people leave, but the system will be in place for how that's going to be done. Uh, so there's a real disconnect out there, obviously, from everything that we hear. But I think this board needs to be actively involved in some of the decision-making at the at the upper level. Uh, and that protects you, that protects everyone else involved, and it also keeps us involved as well. Mm-hmm. Because I had legislators asking me, I had neighbors that, you know, people saying, you know, what's going on? You know, how this happened, how that happened? I don't know. You're on the board. I don't know. Uh, so I think that's, that can't happen either. So but, I think uh, Chair, I'm I'm about to jump out of my seat here. (laughs) Things that we have to be very careful of is that we are not day-to-day caretakers. That's the commissioner's job, and it's her job to hire. It's our job to hire her. That's her authority. That's the law. And let's let's not go too far in our quest to be informed as to take over the duties of the commissioner. Let's be very careful here. That's her job. Well, I want to follow up because I think under the under the law, we have oversight, and we do have to have some oversight. Uh, so, yeah, I don't want to get involved in day-to-day operations, obviously, either, but I think it protects the commissioner and it protects people if this board has more oversight and more involvement. Providence is the biggest story in, in the Northeast, probably, as far as turnaround goes. And we're in this program. We're the Board of Ed. We should have more, a little bit more oversight on that. And I think maybe we need a legal opinion about exactly what our authority is or is not, because yeah. frankly, my understanding is the same as Joe Eva's. So. Um, yes. And I don't, I don't want to make, uh, I, we hire the commissioner. I, I don't want to be involved in other personnel decisions. I think you're wrong, but that, let's get the legal opinion. Yes. Or, Silva? Yeah. Talking to me? Yeah. Okay. comment a little bit on the, the, the negotiations that were made with the outgoing superintendent. And I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm, well, I'm new to this game, to this committee, but when I was listening to all of this, and I knew that legal counsel was involved, and you know, in any time when you're dealing with personnel matters, it's not something that you include everybody in because the person that's leaving has some rights mm-hmm. you know so i i wonder in my mind I, I was thinking like you know when back in the day when i sat in those meetings to negotiate things like that is that it 
was contract language. It was uh, negotiating at the table to have an exit plan that was appropriate for what the language was in that contract. I mean, I, and, and it's not something that we, we shared publicly. So I think I was a little taken aback that it was the number 170, 170, 170 was so talked about because it's usually not like that when you have an exit plan for an, uh, for an employee that's being exited out of a, out of a position for any reason. And, um, it, I think I was comfortable that, uh, the commissioner had said to us that she, she had the, the legal counsel handle that because that's what legal counsel does. And that's why I, I, I felt comfortable with the decision. I, I don't know what the contract read or what your negotiations were, but in my mind, I knew that there was probably a lot more on the table than that when, when it happened. So, uh, you know, and, and I want to get back to something that, uh, that you said earlier, Colleen, and, and, and about, uh, people's feelings. You know, um, we all know that when you're broken and you go into school every day, with a filthy classroom and a broken heating system and windows that don't open when it's hot or stay closed when it, when the wind blows them open, you feel very disrespected as a classroom teacher, you know, going from in, in mold issues, curriculum issues, not enough PD, not enough. And you're talking 30 years of that. It's hard to trust. And sometimes, and, and so when you eat the elephant a little bit at a time, when you're not in turnaround, it's not as painful to build that trust. But turnaround is 100 miles an hour. And I think that looking at the, the work that has been done, I think that there needs to be this, this feeling of balance of saying, okay, it's hard to change. And but the things that we're seeing and the changes in just their environment alone has got to give them some faith that they're going in the right direction. And I'm hoping that that is how we can proceed with the person who's going to take the leadership of that district um, uh, to, take, to take it to the next level. But people's feelings matter. And that includes the feelings of the commissioner. And I, I got to tell you, being retired, I probably should get a job at Walmart or somewhere <laughs> because, you know, listening to talk radio while I'm talking around, it's very painful not to hear the undertone of race. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was, it was, it, I it was, I was taken aback by how it went from being the commissioner making a decision to the commissioner's background, her being Hispanic became the topic. And it was very disappointing uh, because, you know, we've made so many strides in bringing bilingual schools to our, knowing our communities are changing all over the state, bringing in bilingual education and bringing in more uh, teachers that look like our students. We need to take a breath and step back from this now. And, and look at what's good that's happening and start, as, as the principal said, start building some trust again. Bring back the trust of the teacher that said, we need to trust each other. And I, I think that uh, it, it was hurtful to hear it go from commissioner 
to Hispanic commissioner, it was painful to listen to. And I was, I was a little surprised that the people in charge of those shows were, were even entertaining that. It was very disappointing to hear. I, I agree completely with mm -hmm. that. And I can't even listen to those shows, yeah. to be quite frank with you, um, or to read comments sometimes on postings that start out one way and end up another because of trolls. You're, it's horrid, horrific. Um, somehow or other, as you said, we have to think about going forward. I think, Amy, you're correct. We clearly need some kind of an opinion. So we know what the law says about how the individuals on this committee are charged by the General Assembly with certain things. Um, we know that we are appointed and then finally vested with this authority with advice and consent of Senate. And so again, I think, uh, I don't know all the legal ins and outs of, of the, uh, the fine print, if you will, but clearly I think we need, we need an opinion on that. I think that the go forward, Patty, around the building trust, and again, I think it was you, Larry, who said it, to protect everyone, to make sure that we're doing our job to protect you from being out there on the end of that limb. Um, it doesn't hurt. I also do not want to micromanage. We all have enough to do on our plates. But I also think we have some responsibility around this oversight. And I think for the multiple reasons that we've said, I would like us to investigate what is our role and going forward, whether it is um, in certain circumstances to yet be defined, um, that this certain things have to come before this board to be affirmed, to be whatever the case or the appropriate word is. And so I don't know if we need a motion to that effect. I don't know if we just need agreement that this is something that we need to investigate so that we can build trust going forward because we have the appropriate processes, the appropriate checks and balances, and we can all really, quite frankly, no matter what that hierarchy that somebody said today, we all know that we feel comfortable doing what we've been charged with doing. And that's what I'm asking. I want to try to separate what our job is for all the good reasons, to build trust, to do what we're supposed to do on behalf of Providence and then other districts as well. So I think we need to ask that question, Barbara, and whether it's the legal folks over there or if it's you that can tell us, do we need a motion? Do we have agreement that we can investigate this and then chart a path forward? Okay, so that so just part of that question, I think, is did this council have the legal authority to delegate that responsibility to the commissioner? Or did you do that inappropriately mm -hmm. or incorrectly? And did that mean we gave up other authorities? I don't know. We have to ask I think that question. At, at the time, um, we talked about we gave we voted and gave authority day to day and decision making to the commissioner, and said and had a somewhat similar discussion and um, said that our uh, accountability rested in the commissioner and that action could be taken there if we didn't like the decisions. Now we can revisit it. So what I'm gonna suggest, looking at the time, I wanna make sure everybody's had time to speak. I know we're getting warm in this room. <laughs> um, does anybody, and then I'm gonna sum for a minute, so uh, of what we've heard today, anybody else have any other? I just wanted to, to say to you, you know, the points that you were just making, um, rather than emotion, I'd rather trust. I think this is a good place to begin but with the trust 
that we get the information that we've asked for. I'm good with that. And that we move forward from tonight mm -hmm. in trust. Because there's good information. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, uh, I'm inspired by the work that's been done. Yeah. And I, I, I was educated tonight on some things, being new to the council, and so, it filled some gaps for me in regards to what really was going on in, in Providence, and so I appreciate that. But it is about systems, it is about processes, it's about vision, it's about collaboration, and I heard a lot of that tonight. And, I, and I'm really interested in us building that trust and that collaboration and supporting the commissioners we move forward to carry out the systems, to identify the new leadership, to work to identify the new leadership, to put the right leadership in place, and to continue to work with the district to grow the staff from support staff straight through the administration. I heard a lot of great things about the mentoring that's going on. There's an incredible amount of work done in a year and a half. Yeah. That, that amount definitely. of work yeah. in a year and a half, yeah. I only wish I could have done as a superintendent, <laughs> quite honestly. Yeah. And so thank you very much, Commissioner. I think you've done an incredible amount of work in a short period of time. Um, you have my utmost support at this point, and I look forward to working with you. So um, what I'll say, um, you know, comments that I have from tonight, I think we all know it is about the students. And those are not just words. They have to sit at the center of every decision. Um, respect, trust, collaboration were themes that came through many speakers tonight, many comments, and really nothing else can be tolerated. It, this is about the education of our children. It's about the, their future individually. It's about our state. It is about our state's economy. We need to educate people to be citizens in our state, in our world, and they are going to serve as the backbone of selfishly our Rhode Island economy. It sickens me that we have single digit and low double digit numbers. I think that we are on a path. I think, um, Commissioner, you started reminding us of the 30 plus years. We need to do much better than we've done before. And I don't think any of us are going to sit here and be part of a continuation of 30 plus years of um, inattention, um, to our students and to our educational system. That means staying focused, it means it means measuring, and it means deciding on courses, a course, and and keep going forward. Our children can succeed, they can achieve. I believe in them and I believe in our teachers. What I heard tonight, um, and I think we have some good suggestions um, that I wrote down, um, we will continue the deep dive on Providence. I think, um, Colleen, when we had a couple of times, we had the former superintendent and different parts of leadership mm -hmm. team and those working on, on, on individual programs, projects come. I think we will focus on, on different aspects mm -hmm. of Providence um, and go to schools and invite um, the community, I think mm -hmm. we need to keep mm -hmm. them at Absolutely. the center as well. We'll invite the community um, to come to the meeting, mm -hmm. to speak. We'll invite elected officials, particularly, 
as we're in there to get firsthand and to engage in the conversation with them, with us um, on those terms um, and, and family. I don't want to forget family members too. Um, we will take a look and have more focused agendas a little bit to, to go deeper. I want to also remind this council that they are responsible for education statewide. And we need to have topics that touch everybody, not just Providence. Certainly, we have a special focus on on, on Providence. Um, and um, I think we collectively decided, you know, moving forward and trusting. I think a lot of that begins with um, the commissioner um, being very intentional about communication as well. Mm -hmm. And... Um, a commitment to increase that, mm -hmm. particularly for this time period and particularly on Providence. Um, anybody have anything to add that wasn't captured? I, we are going to seek a legal opinion about our role because I do think that that was the trust. That that yeah. was the trust yeah. that we yeah. will. Because I do think, and I was thinking about something Patty said. Not everything has to, I believe, and so maybe this is part of the question, whether certain things, let's just say that we find that we should have more of a role to help you with affirming decisions like that. Those things can be done in executive session. They don't need to be done where everything yes. is aired publicly. So, so we need an opinion about defining this. Defining what the, um, the legislation, the contract did, it'll be and what's our national at the next meeting or the one after that. And I can't not, we can't end tonight with that kind of report, with this kind of progress, without making sure the staff also understands how appreciative mm -hmm. we are of all of yes, this exactly. Because mm -hmm. this has been Yeoman's work for everyone. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I want to just make sure that, you know, and they... During a pandemic. During a pandemic. During a Think pandemic. about that. During the first time we've yes. yes. on the ground up. I can just remember my superintendent days in the school committee asking for reports and all kinds of things, and it consumed my life. Yes. So I only caution us about you being able to find the balance between what we need and the daily grind and the daily right. work. And exactly. That's just going to have to be collaboration between you and the two of us. Member mm -hmm. Gaines. I just wanted to say to the commissioner how sorry I am to, for all that you have been through in these last few weeks. And I hope it doesn't drive you away because you have done a tremendous job and we need you to stay on board and fight the fight. Thank you, Member Thank you. Gaines. After what I heard you say at the beginning, I don't think you're going to give up, right? <laughs> no, no, I'm not a quitter. Yeah. Right. Good. <laughs> All right. This concludes this evening's business. Uh, next meeting is scheduled for Tuesday, June 15th. I will put everyone on notice. We're going to take a look at that on the timing of balancing out meetings, not jamming together and spreading out. We've had some changes, so stay tuned. We'll look at that. Um, they have a motion to adjourn the meeting of the council. So moved. Second. Second. Discussion. All those in favor, aye. 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 Opposed, no. Motion passes. Have a safe trip home, everyone. Glad to Thank be together. You. Yeah. I don't know how you do it. See you.